this for real? Oh, some of them are insane. They're like, uh, do you know what the helicopter is? Oh, God. You know what I'm talking about? No. So basically, the gr- and this is a real position in the Kama Sutra. Apparently, the girl is supposed to be flexible enough to be able to lift bo- both of her legs here. And then you put her on your dick. And then you're supposed to spin her around. <laughs> now, now, I don't know why the helicopter has like... The what are they called? The blades where they go up. They're supposed to go. She's supposed. To, I guess in a real heli- helicopter, she would just go. She would just do a split, and then you would try and. But I, I guess that's to, way too challenging. I was about to say, like, what if you just lay back and they just get on top of you and do the splits? You can pull it towards you, and it, it, it's pretty malleable. You can move it like in a lot of different ways. So bring it to where you're really comfortable, and then uh, that's pretty fucking good. But yeah, what if they? What if you just lay down? She just does the splits on top of you, and you just. Rotate. You just push a leg to the side. <laughs> so, so you need more than you need more than two people for sure. <laughs> so, uh, Mac. Hey, what's up? How you doing, brother? I'm good, dude. You're. I'm so happy that we finally get to do this, dude. This is a long time in the making with a lot of yeah, iMessage yeah. communications. Quite literally, and even today, you came and uh, you've been gra- you've been gracious enough to wait like another two hours because I was uh, ill prepared. I, uh, I'm doing some night shifts right now, so I wake up pretty late. Um, but Dude. thank you for being here. I really appreciate it, man. And I'm, I'm very excited about this conversation. Yeah, uh, me too, man. Because um, you're my favorite porn star. Thanks. Can you hear the sizzle? I, I can hear the sizzle. You are one of those people who I don't even know how to start describing you. So you're a musician. You're an incredible astrophotographer, which you learned everything by yourself. You just kind of decided and that will be fun to kind of dive into. And then recently you also started doing, uh, what do you call that? That's microscopy. Oh, microscopy. Yeah. Interesting. So it's basically, that would be the opposite of astrophotography, really. Yeah, right. Going yeah. from the, the biggest and furthest things to the smallest and closest things. And every single thing that you do and pick up, you, you excel at. Yeah, uh, which is incredible because you teach everything. Uh, the The story of how you started, for example, astrophotography is interesting because you you told me that you had some issues sleeping, and then all of a sudden you decided, you know what, I'm just going to use this time to like. Was that was that a far summation of how you kind of like get into that? Kind of, sorta. Like I, w- I was always into space, like ever since I was a kid, but I didn't know you can really take pictures of it. And I had gotten, I had gotten into light painting first. Right, I forgot about that period. Yeah, so uh, I I got into photography because I decided I was going to go to a concert, and uh, with a few friends. And you know, you know, let me let me backtrack for just a second, and talk about pin- pinnacle moments. This is a pinnacle moment. Is it like where it's like if you have your timeline of your life, and then there's like moments where if you didn't have that moment, your life would have been in a completely different place than you are now. And this was a pinnacle moment because I was supposed to go to a concert with a few friends and they all bailed. And I was thinking about bailing too. And I didn't end up bailing and I ended up going alone and uh, ended up meeting somebody in the front row with me. Like I had never met this person. He introduces himself as Chris Bauer and, uh, and his girlfriend, Kristen. And he, I was like, what do you do? And he's like, oh, I'm a light painter. And I was like, the hell is light painting? what the hell like i just knew it was by people that like draw hearts and whatever anyways got home added him on facebook and i saw his work and i was like oh my god this is the coolest thing i've ever seen in my life this is awesome and i have to learn to do this 
So I immediately bought a camera the next week, and that's how I got into photography. So now, what, into photography in general? Yeah. Oh, I didn't even know that. Yeah, that was just, I just, I, I saw a light painter, thought it was super cool, wanted to do it, bought a camera. It was like within that, that next week. So for people who don't know, what is light painting? Light painting is painting with light. It's like... Well, it's that thing when you basically take like a light and you make a really long exposure, right? Yeah, then... so it's long exposure photography using uh, flashlights or LEDs or some sort of light source. And then you can either attach it to different things or put like cloths around it. And it all just gives different textures as you're painting with it, fiber optics, like anything that can move or manipulate light in some way is a paintbrush in a way on a canvas of darkness. Well, that's poetic. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, so I actually didn't know that that's how you got into photography in general. I thought you already been doing photography and then light painting was just a thing on top of it that you were just trying to be creative or something. No, and then it was maybe six months later, I discovered uh, an astrophotographer by the name of Mark G. And he came out with a really, it, it, it like kind of blew up and went viral. It's a, it's a video. It's super simplistic. It's basically the moon rise over a mountain and you just see people walking in front of the moon. So it's just silhouettes in front of, it's actually called full moon silhouettes. If you ever wanted to look it up. And so I got into that and I saw that and I was like, oh, he's probably got some other cool stuff. And he's, he's just a Milky Way photographer. And, uh, he, I was like, what? You can take pictures of the Milky Way? This is awesome. And so I immediately that night went out to Joshua Tree and I was like, I pointed my camera up at the sky and I started taking a bunch of pictures and I saw nothing. <laughs> Zero. Was it just a DSLR? Yeah. And uh, I didn't, didn't see anything. I tried so hard. And that was a long drive out to Josh. It was like two, three hours. And, um, and then I went home and I did my research. And I found out you can't take pictures of the Milky Way in the winter. Oh. Uh, is it because of where it is in, in the sky? No, it's always in the sky, right? Yes. It just So different parts of the year, you're looking into different parts of space. For example, in... Uh, springtime at nighttime for us we are in a position where we are looking out of our milky way oh outside outside so you're not looking in inwards towards the bulge you're looking like out into out like intergalactic space basically exactly and so we call that galaxy season because at that point that's when we start taking pictures of all of our galaxies because we're looking outwards versus when we're taking pictures of a lot of nebulas or uh just deep space stuff we're normally actually like looking into our own galaxy and taking pictures of nebulas and whatever inside our own galaxies did we ever capture with like the you know the big boys like uh w like uh hubble like uh the big telescopes did they ever take a picture of uh gas clouds inside of other galaxies oh that's yeah oh we did okay Mm -hmm. many yeah. So okay, so this so most of the stuff that we see now, like with you know the uh, W map is like really tra- uh, not W map. What's it called? The James uh, Webb. James Webb. Yes. Yeah. Uh, all those pictures, most of them, they're from the inside of our galaxy, or they're no. Those are those are from other other galaxies. Other galaxies. That whole deep field 
No, picture. deep field, yes. But yeah. what I mean, like most of the uh, most of the gas clouds that we see, the star nurseries. Those, those are, are those, a lot of those are within our own galaxy. Yeah. Okay. But but we definitely took some pictures from the outside, like from other galaxies. Yeah. It's so interesting because I I, uh, I nerd out on space so much, but there's some general technical things that you really don't think about. Like you know that uh, telescopes can take pictures from uh, millions of light years away, pretty much to the edge of the universe. But for some reason, it never occurred to me like, wait, but can we create a resolution that can also look inside because of the density of matter inside of other galaxies? That wasn't clear to me. And I think I think what you told me once is that the the spectrum in which you're actually shooting actually changes what you're seeing, right? So basically, the elements you're shooting, can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So there's our visible spectrum of light. And our visible spectrum of light is all the reds and blues and greens and yellows and anything like when you see a prism of light, that's our visible spectrum. And then you've got the things outside of the visible spectrum like x-rays and gamma rays and microwaves and like all these different other things. And so what, what I do personally is there is within our spectrum of light, there's little pieces in that spectrum uh, called band passes. Now imagine our spectrum of light as if each degree of color, which is, is a, a wavelength of light, um, has a number attached to it. Those numbers are called uh, nanometers. So what I do is I take a small little sliver, which is three nanometers wide, of where a wavelength of life, light called hydrogen or hydrogen alpha exists, which is normally like in the red kind of area. And then I also do oxygen and sulfur. So what I do is I just take my hydrogen images with like a filter. So it's a filter that allows, well, light will come hit the filter, but no light will actually pass through the filter onto the camera itself. That isn't the wavelength of hydrogen alpha. So hydrogen, just to clarify, uh, hydrogen alpha is the, is that bandwidth of light. So you, like you said, you measure it in nanometers. So that particular bandwidth of light interacts very particularly with, let's say, sulfur or hydrogen, yeah. right? Yeah. So when you say hydrogen alpha, is that a name astrophotographers give to the type of light that bounces off hydrogen? Or hydrogen alpha is like a name for a particular light? It's a it's the name of the particular wavelength of wavelength light. of light. Yes. Well, how much is that, by the way, nanometers? Do you remember? I want to say it's like seven hundred and something. I know that what my little piece that I take is three nanometers wide. Wow. So it it cuts out every bit of light except for that small little sliver of three nanometers. That's insane. And that's the only light that comes through, which is also why I have to take really long exposures to get these things because I'm cutting out so much light. If I didn't have any of those filters and I'm just shooting without any sort of filter, I could probably get away with like a two, three minute exposure with like great details. But because I'm cutting out so much light and only letting a small little bit come through, I've got to do 10, 15, sometimes 20 minute exposures to get the shots that I'm getting. And and the a lot of the apparatus you have, I, I saw it and, you know, we talked about it, but it would be interesting to explore just shortly. You connect. So when you're actually shooting the sky now versus when you just started, 
-hmm. You have a telescope, you have a whole apparatus, you have a thing that tracks the sky, you have a computer attached to it. The thing that is actually doing the shooting, the thing that is actually letting the light in, is this a regular camera you're connecting to it? Or this is like a special camera connected to the telescope that collects that data, basically? So it, it, it is kind of a regular camera. It uses a regular Sony sensor on it. Um, the, the main difference between like a, the cameras that I used to use, which is what, what was just a regular DSLR versus the astronomy camera that I use now, there's, there's a few major differences that make it great for astronomy. One, it has a cooling system on it. So, you know, when you're shooting photography, how you get noise, right? That's normal. Um, do you know how noise is created? Like the, I think it has something to do with the size of the and the uh, of the sensor. So, like how much pixels are available on each portion of the sensor, right? And if you don't have enough of them, then you basically get this disturbance. Is that correct? Not exactly. It's actually the heat of the sensor. Oh, really? That's why when you turn up, so the I when you turn up your ISO, you're turning up the sensitivity of your sensor. That's why it's like a digital brightener almost because so it allows for more light on the sensor basically it doesn't allow for more light on the sensor it amplifies the light that's hitting the sensor imagine like a, how does it do that do you know well think of it like this uh if you plug your guitar into an amplifier okay it's the iso is turning the volume up so when you're playing you're still playing the same chord just as hard but as you turn the volume up it gets louder right mm. so you're amplifying sound waves this is amplifying photons and and the data that's coming through okay but when you do that just like when you're turning up the volume on an amplifier you're putting more energy and more uh electricity through it so that heats up the sensor so, so the process by which it amplifies the the signal of light coming in is also the same process that heats up the sensor and because of that it introduces that noise more of the graininess more the more the noise exactly okay. so that's why when you use a higher iso you're heating up your sensor faster and that gives you more noise now, really mm -hmm. oh wow so interesting I, I i actually had a completely different picture of this yeah it's, okay. it's pretty fascinating and so what makes an astronomy camera great is it's got its own cooling system It has a fan built into the camera, so it's constantly letting out all the hot air, which allows you to take 10-minute exposures with almost not no, not no noise, but like very minimal noise. So it cuts that out. And then another big difference is when you shoot with a DSLR, you're shooting a red, blue, and a green image at the same time, and the camera is taking those three channels, putting them together and giving you a full color image instantaneous where you see it on the back of your phone. This happens on your cell phones and DSLRs. Mine, my camera is a black and white camera. Now, something a lot of people don't know is your sensor on your camera, on this camera, on your phone and whatever. The sensor itself is a black and white sensor. It's a monochrome sensor. You just have a filter on top of that sensor. It's very thin and it's called a Bayer matrix and it's got little red, blue, and green, uh, filters on top of your sensor. Hmm. That's how you get those three channels. Um, for me, it's a black and white and I just put a giant green filter on and I have to shoot each channel individually. 
So having an Astro camera allows me to do that as well. So it does that automatically for you? The, 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 it shoots all three of them at once separately, or you actually have to change the filter every time? I have to change the filter. Interesting. I, I take about 50 images with each filter. Okay. So I, let's say if I'm shooting a galaxy, which normally isn't a hydrogen, oxygen, sulfur kind of thing. It's more of a red, blue, and green thing. What I do is I take 50 shots with a red filter in front of it. And I just get red data, which means everything that's coming from that galaxy down the barrel of my telescope, hitting the, the, um, the filter, everything that is not red is bouncing off. Everything that is red gets passed through that red filter, hitting the sensor, and therefore I get all my red data. And then I switch after 50 of those images, I switch out the filter, do the same thing with blue, do the same thing with green. And then I stack all my red filters, all those 50 images together, same thing with blue, same thing with green. So I have now three different images. And you know when you're in Photoshop, how normally there's like layers and then there's channels mm -hmm. and you can break down the channels. So if I take my red picture and I import that into the red channel and then the blue into the blue channel and the green into the green channel, then it gives me an RGB. And that's how I get a full color image with a nice blend of all the different colors, the way that a normal camera would see. So, so essentially the colors are elements? The color, if you're shooting it Because RGB, you're shooting at a different, like you're picking up a different element of that image, right? So it's almost like you're overlaying three different elements yeah. to give you the colors that we see in an image versus just directly seeing the colors. Because the telescope doesn't see the galaxies with the beautiful colors that we see on the internet, right? This is something that is later translated into how we see things. Or am I wrong about that? Uh, if you're shooting an RGB, so if you're shooting with red, blues, and greens, uh, and using those filters on top, those are the real colors that you're actually seeing. Oh, because I think what I'm confusing is that one time you explained to me that sometimes you're not shooting through RGB. Sometimes you're right. So if you're shooting with hydrogen, oxygen, and sulfur, that is... We can't... We, we call it false color. Uh, it's it's stupid, but it is what it is. So this this the thing is is when you shoot with hydrogen, oxygen, sulfur, uh, and use those as your color palette, as those are your three channels instead of red, blue, and green, then you have to assign each one of those a, a color. A color. And at that point, you have got so much more room for creativity as far as like what color palette you want to choose. Like Hubble Space Telescope, they've got their own color palette called the Hubble Color Palette. And I use that a lot in my own images um, where you have a lot of blues and golds. And um, so that is less true to what they actually kind of look like versus if you're shooting an RGB like all my galaxies that I've ever shot, galaxies are normally shot with red, blue, and green and RGB. Those are all like, that's what they look like. Those are the actual colors. It's almost like I'm shooting it with a regular DSLR and that's what's showing up. I just have to take each one of those colors individually. Wow. So how long does it take on average from collecting the data at night to being able to produce an image, like a fully coherent image that you see? About a month. Oh, wow. 
Yeah. I thought it was like a few days. Why does it take so long? So normally my images, I take about 25 to 28 hours of exposure time. And so to do that, I have to, as soon as the sun goes down and it gets dark enough, I've got to, at that point, point the telescope at the target, have everything aligned, and then shoot as the, as the target moves across the sky, my telescope will follow it, keep taking 10, 15 minute exposures. And then I have to do that for multiple nights. And you have to find the target always in the perfect alignment, exactly how it was the night before. Exactly. Oh, wow. Yeah. So is that what you have? That's what the star tracker is for? Like that thing that, that basically, there's a thing that measures the rotation of the sky, right? It kind of locks on the thing and it rotates, it, it corrects for the motion of the sky, right? Yes and no. So that, that's called a mount. And the, as, as the target moves across the sky, yes, it follows it. And it also corrects with the rotation of it. Um, I've got something on it called a rotator, which will actually rotate the camera to get the right or orientation that I need. And the cool thing about having these things is that what you can, what I personally do is I type in, like when I'm starting a new project, let's say I want to shoot the Orion Nebula. I type in Orion Nebula and it shows me a picture of the Orion Nebula with a box around it. And the box is my field of view. It's what's going to look, what it's going to look like in my picture. So at that point, I rotate it until I get it in the perfect orientation that I want. I push enter, write a few codes and stuff in and, uh, and import all of my information that I want the camera to do. Like I want the camera to cool down to this temperature, which is normally about negative 20 degrees below, um, ambient temperature. Uh, I put, I want this to be 50 shots in red, 50 shots in blue, 50 shots in green. And I want them to each to be this amount of time for an exposure. Like I put all that stuff in and then when I push start, the telescope will immediately go to that spot. It will find the target and how it finds the target is actually kind of cool. So it will go to where it thinks it is. It will take a picture of the sky and then it will take the stars in that area, triangulate them, look into its database to see where those same stars triangulate in the database. And it will be like, okay, it's, we're actually over here, but the target's over here. So then it will move it over here. And every time it goes to another spot, it will triangulate those stars and get finer and finer until it finally locks onto your target. And then the camera will then rotate to your perfect orientation that you set. And at that point, it just starts taking your pictures and everything along the sky. And then the next day when you have to continue, because you can only get so many hours a night, and it's assuming you have great seeing with no just you know uh, atmospheric distortion or um clouds in the sky or whatever it may be there's always you're always at the mercy of the weather um so the next night because you already have that locked in you at that point can just lock onto it again the next night and shoot for another few hours and then shoot for another you know for like a takes about a week to shoot everything Maybe a little bit more, maybe about two weeks to shoot day because you don't always get clear nights every night. And sometimes you don't have a full night either to shoot whatever it is that you want to shoot. Sometimes you have three, four hours because the target's only over here, but it gets too low at a certain point. That is so wild. That is so much like, so most of the work really is calculations. 
just like making sure that you you find the target that and also the the all the things that you said about cooling down and going to the right temperatures at the right time all of that is just according to your experience of astrophotography like you know that if you you're going to miss some of those marks the image is going to be what a little bit more blurry or not clear or yeah because if if an object is too low on the horizon which we we like to there's there's degrees above the horizon and below the horizon like oh no i just mean the temperature thing right so like if the if the temperature of the sensor let's say but that's the thing too is if it's too low if it's a like on the horizon it's going to be blurry because you're looking through more atmosphere so all these things you have to take into interesting the higher up your your target is like directly above you the less atmosphere you're shooting from the less atmospheric distortion you get you know like when you're in the in the desert and you're looking down the road how things are really wavy Mm -hmm. so that's atmospheric distortion and uh that happens in the sky too that's why stars twinkle because stars don't twinkle in space; they're straight. What you're, what we're seeing is that light coming through, and the waves of atmospheric distortion rippling to make it seem like they're twinkling. So, if I'm shooting an object in space through those waves, my stuff comes out blurry. And the more you get towards the horizon, the more blurry it is because the more atmosphere you're looking through. Mm. So those things you have to take into account too so you can't always shoot from when it starts at the horizon comes all the way up and then down to the horizon again you have to you have like you've got that window to yeah shoot because around. if it's too far in the horizon it's there's way too much distortion yeah so what so this is um how long have you been doing astrophotography now total started with milky way 2017 and then deep space seriously in about 2019 and would you say that the jump is pretty radical yeah and in what way specifically it's just it's a lot it's it's so much more technical with milky way photography like just to be able to do it like you just have to um take a dslr put it on a on a tripod point it at the sky and click it away you know with 30 second exposure deep space that's so much more technical you have to know where your target is in the sky and you can't see things in the sky. If you, you, I mean, you can see maybe two or three objects in the sky with your naked eye. As far as I have terrible eyes, but like, what? What is the? How many parsecs away can you see with your telescope? With your setup? I forgot what a parsec or, is. I think it's like fifty thousand light years or something. Well, let, 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 in light years, like how many light years away? Oh, jeez, I don't know. I know that the furthest thing that I've taken a picture of is i want to say i don't remember if it's the sombrero galaxy racist yeah right <laughs> uh, but uh i don't remember but it's about it's about 50 million light years away whoa that's yeah. like further than Reseda. dude i saw the best meme the other day it was someone that put a tortilla on a record player and put the needle down and just go i laughed oh my god yeah i I wish we can go back to shit like that without paying uh, a canceling price it's ridiculous i know right i'm gonna get canceled tonight that's fine (laughs) um if i can get if i get enough attention to be canceled then that's a good thing um so 
Okay, so 50 million light years. That's kind of insanity. So this is something we talk a little bit about. I mean, you can see further. The stars behind it, you can see. No, further, I mean, like, with your setup, you can see further? Yeah, but just as far as, like, getting details, that's the furthest that I've shot an actual object with details. Like so I'm going the- to throw some rapid questions at you because I'm like, I'm, I, I don't want to forget the Let's go. the details. Bring so first of all, the when you're saying getting details, so if you can see further away, but you're not getting details, is it equivalent to depth of field? Like you're literally changing how far you're trying to focus? No. Or that, that's different? There's not really depth of field in space. Like you're kind of always at infinity at that point. Um, you... When you're shooting, it's like you don't really see the stars in front of you versus the stars in back of you unless you're shooting uh, with James Webb telescope <laughs> status. But like, which I do. Yeah, which I do from time to time. <laughs> um, but Confused with the W map, but that's okay. Everything is, like all stars, no matter how close they are to you, to far to you, they're all in the same focus. So, so when you were saying you, you didn't get... Like the so okay so you took a picture of this far, but you're saying that technically you could see further with pretty okay resolution, right? What would be the difference between shooting this and shooting? Obviously, for you, it's two dimensional at that point. Like you're saying, it's all kind of like on one plane, but it's just a matter of like just refocusing on that object versus focusing on just like uh, there really is not. In fact, in fact. All my targets, like, focus is pretty much the same. Like, I don't... So just aiming? So it's just aiming in the sky, basically? It's... I mean, there is... There's reasons why you have to focus. And this comes down to, like, a big science. Like, it's not... When you're shooting at, let's say, the Orion Nebula versus uh, a galaxy 50 million... Like, there's a giant gap, like... Orion is just a few thousand light years away versus 50 million light years. Like they are far as hell away from each other, but, um, they're just, they're far enough where you don't have to deal with depth of field and the focus is pretty the same, but there are things though that make you want to focus. Obviously you want to make sure that your stars are always sharp, but then as your, as the temperature in your area changes, your telescope changes. The you mean in your immediate area? Like where you're sitting with exactly. the... Exactly. Okay. Like that's around the telescope. Um, the glass itself will change for the lenses. And these things affect um, focus. So we actually have a warm-up period of like an hour of when you take off, when you're ready for the telescope and everything to set up, you normally let it all acclimate to the the weather around it for about an hour before you actually start shooting so that like it's hot in the daytime your it, your telescope has expanded and because of that your focus is going to be different than it is if it's really small and uh your fo- your your telescope contracts a little bit so w- so this is something we touched on a little bit off camera you said that when it comes to like really deep space shooting, mm-hmm. um, you said that time dilation plays some kind of a role, or this is just a mindfuck that you're kind of dealing with, philosophical mindfuck you're dealing with while you're shooting it. I just think it's something really cool that I think about when I'm doing it. It's like, okay, let's say I'm shooting an object that's 50 million light years away. 
What the really? I don't know what if cursing is okay, but like, oh, definitely. Okay, yeah, it's really sponsored by fucking Brent, so we're good. Yeah, it's really fucking far away. <laughs> and uh, from our perspective, light has been traveling for fifty million years through the blackness of space, through the the vastness of everything, uninterrupted by anything, for fifty million years, until it finally reaches Earth, gets through our atmosphere finds its way to Los Angeles, California, goes down the barrel of my telescope through a filter, and then finally gets recorded onto a sensor. Never, it just absorbed, and never, that light, that 50 million year old ancient light. You ruined it. I ruined it. It is gone. And after such a crazy journey for such a long time. Um, but the time clock on that light for us it was 50 million years for that light it never existed it never existed yeah and time never changed because the fast for anyone that is listening that doesn't know it's like einstein's theory of special relativity states that the faster you go the slower time goes until you reach the speed of light in which time stops and what goes the speed of light? Light does. So from the moment that that light was created from that star to the time it hit my my camera, it's time never happened for that. For that photon, it was just yeah. instant. It was, yeah, beginning of the universe and the end of the universe are the same for photon. For the light, yeah, yeah, for the light. For anything with with no mass, which is the electromagnetic field. Yeah. Uh, but what's it? You know the the craziest. Um, illustration whenever i think about it is so everything basically bends to the speed of light the speed of light must remain the same which means that if you have a long enough rod let's say something earth-like let's say a pencil let's say a really long pencil i'm just reiterating reiterating it for the audience that just to illustrate how crazy it is and let's say you stretch that pencil is long is so long that it stretches all the way from the sun to your shoulder if somebody's standing next to the sun and pushes that pencil, because the sun is eight light years, uh, eight, <laughs> eight light years, eight, uh, eight exactly. light minutes, minutes away, so, yeah. because nothing can f- move faster than light, there's no signal of any kind that is allowed to reach you that that pencil was pushed, which means that even though it's one object, it will literally shrink by eight light minutes. Yeah. So the first light of somebody pushing the pencil will reach you and only in that moment the pencil will actually push your shoulder and that is not like this is not like some theoretical stuff this is literally the stuff that we use every day to adjust gps's every single day otherwise they're going to drift by like miles every single day well, that is that is, that is just like insanity so when you're looking at those galaxies obviously you have no idea how they look like now they're probably some of them probably don't exist right some objects yeah. simply don't exist anymore yeah you've and, seen what they used to look like 50 million years ago yeah and this is another thing that actually to be honest took me quite a while to fully wrap my mind around which is that it's not just a matter of it's not a quirk of your perception. That's a component of what space-time is, which means that the reason we say space-time in one breath, and we don't say it's not space-time, it's space-time. It's space. It's your spatial it's, it's coordinate one, it, and your time, time coordinate. coordinate. And they're one. They're like interwined, which right. means that 
the time from the beginning of the universe, even for neighboring uh, galaxies, even for Andromeda, let's say, it's not the same ticking time for them and for us. Like the time in, in Andromeda physically is different now. It's not just that it's far away. It's also in a different time, not zone, but like galactic time zone. Like it's a, yeah. it, it, it has been a different time from the beginning of the universe for it and for us, which is just... Yeah, this is this this part really gets to me that that when you're looking really far out, what you're seeing is not just that it's not there anymore. Some of it is that there is no there for you. Yeah, it's not like there is an instant that you can agree on. There is no what's out there right now. It just doesn't exist for you. What's out there right now is what you see. Mm-hmm. That's it. That that is that is the, like a real mind fuck for me every time. I can never get out of that one. Do you want me to screw with your mind a little Please. more? Please. If I were to give you a time machine right now and say you can go to anywhere in the future or anywhere in the past, would you use it? And where would you go? Mm. It's a time machine. Yeah. I never actually thought about that, to be honest. Um, let's just play the game. I'll say I go to the future. Okay. Bad idea. Let me tell you why. Uh, tell me why. Either, either one of those answers would have been a bad idea. So it's a time machine. Which means if you were to go back even a second, one single second, or even half a second, Earth is moving. The universe is moving. Our galaxy is moving so fast. And if you were to go back in time one second, but not move in space, you would end up in space. Just in the middle of nowhere. Right. Because Earth is different. You're, yeah. you're, moving, you're moving in time, but you're not moving in space. Yeah. You've never been in the same spot in your life, even if you've been sitting on one chair. Yeah. yeah. If, if, you, if, if I gave you a time and space machine, then I'd be like, okay, use it to whenever you want to go. But, like, but then you would need to know your spatial coordinate of where you, would, you were in the universe at any given time. And that you can't really do. Yeah. And also probably one universe. Because that probably changes all the time as well, Fair. but the, but the yeah, but I guess I guess that kind of goes against the the space time continuum idea, which is like you can't actually move just through time. You will undoubtedly will also move in space to whatever yeah, coordinate it is. Everywhere basically. we go, it's like right now I'm here with you at four forty eight. You know, this is my space time coordinate, and then later on, who knows what strip club I'll be. I mean, what? What? <laughs> it's all relative, man. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, so let's move uh, to what, you, what you've moved to recently, which is uh, microscopy, right? Yeah. And this is something that you just picked up out of the blue. And you first started doing, you told me you start, first started doing uh, macro photography, which is just uh, taking pictures of things, amplifying them a lot, like, you know, pictures of bugs and eyes and things like that yeah and then you decided you want to see how for how much further you can take it so you introduced a microscope into the picture mm-hmm. and how does it work with a microscope again do you attach a camera like does it, is it a microscope that is designed to be able to take pictures through or is it just a regular microscope and then you attach somehow like a camera lens? so uh people know binoculars mm-hmm. too uh my tel- my microscope is a trinocular so there's a third one so there's the two that you look at, and then there's a third one that comes up through the middle. And that one either allows someone else to look through, or what I do is I just attach my DSLR to it. Um, just have an adapter, and then you stick that in, and 
then you can record what you're seeing under the microscope. So what what is it, what are the first things that you started taking pictures of? So I went down to Lake Balboa, and um, there's like a little waterfall there. Have you been to Lake Balboa? Yeah, yeah. So there's like a little mini waterfall, and there's a lot of algae. And I know that algae is is very predominant for having a lot of microorganisms and stuff that live inside, and feed because it's a good source of food. And so I went and I picked up a bunch of algae, put it in a little jar. I felt like a scientist. I sat. I wasn't wearing a little lab coat, but whatever. And um, brought it back to my place, put a few drops under the thing. And what I saw was just insane. There was hundreds of, if not more, if not thousands of real organisms in there swimming around, eating things like like and you can tell what they were doing like it wasn't like they were just blobs it was like they had a life that they were actually like they had a coherent behavior basically yeah and uh you just saw this whole universe like in a single drop of water and i thought that was so fascinating and the thing too is i didn't really know what was what like if i saw something i didn't know what that was um and I think the whole research side of it became pretty brilliant too. It's like, okay, if something has eight legs, what is it? And you have to look it up. It's like, okay, it's got to be this, or it's an arachnid of some sort. So it's a, a mite, maybe. Wait, wait, wait. You have arachnids on that size? Well, like a mite of some sort. Um, so it belongs to the arachnid family, like 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 spiders. Depends how many legs they have, yeah. So, it, so arachnids are defined purely by eight legs. That's the only definition. No, there's there's a few different things, but one of the characteristics that makes something an arachnid is eight legs. Interesting. Yeah, and then at that point, it can branch off into other things. Depend like a subcategory of. I mean, do you remember in school you had to remember the kingdom phylum class order family genus species? Like I never had to do that. No. No. And then, so you know, studying in a different direction. Oh, so it's it was uh, like the classification systems of what make what like what uh, what makes something a mammal versus uh, amphibian versus a reptile and like different characteristics. Well, it depends how they identify themselves. <laughs> <laughs> We're just trying to get into trouble today. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> today I'm getting canceled by aliens. It's an amoeba, but it does identify as an arachnid. the show is not going to continue after this episode for sure right I had a talking about memes I I saw this meme the other day I think we probably saw it it's a cheetah competing with people and it says uh, first cheetah identifies as a person wins the 100 100 meter dash (laughs) oh my god Oh my god! I love that world. It's so amazing. If only, if only people wrote their names of whoever created these memes, it'd be so much more chaos. It's it's just so funny. People get so furious. That 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 portion is really funny to me. But anyways, back to uh, the amazing world of a drop of water. Um, so then, after you did the drop of water, you saw a bunch of things you didn't know. You started researching them. You started figuring out what is each thing. Which must be fascinating because when I saw you posting these things, I realized that I actually know nothing about that world. Like my girl, she loves that. Like she's, you know, she's a biology buff. Like she loves all that stuff. And I am so uneducated when it comes to that. So for me, 
the only way I can get interested in something is if I have some applicable way to interact with it. So like if you just give me a list of things, I can can't possibly care. But I like if I would get into microscopy, I would totally like that would be fascinating. Like, oh, I saw these things. I wonder what they are. Now yeah. your brain is interested, which, by the way, is a small tangent. I always say that I don't understand why they don't teach everything this way in school. I don't understand why when you walk into like no matter how complicated the subject like if I don't know uh, theoretical physics physics before you start any course on like basic physics you should first show kids black holes <laughs> no seriously you should I mean, show the craziest true. shit and then you like and, and they're like what there. the fuck is that and I'm like okay let me show you yeah. and then you start from the basics you want to understand that we got to start here but now you have this thing you know right. like you want to understand and it always starts like the other way, just like fucking like memorizing shit. It's like, what is that? Man, like, I would have loved math if they started with like, you want to be a rocket scientist? Or, or like Let's some, go. even in pure math, there's so many like crazy, do you know what a gram number is? No. So a gram number in pure mathematics, there's actually two different kinds of gram numbers. And I think they're spelled a little bit different, but one of them. Is it G-R-A-M? Like a. One of them is G-R-A-M and one is with an H. Okay. And I don't remember which one is which. I think the one with the H is the one that I'm talking about, but it might be it might be wrong. Okay. But one of the funnest things about it is that the guy who discovered the Graham number, his name is something Graham, and he's also a circus clown. Yeah. And a mathematician, which is amazing. Graham number. I discovered it. So Graham number, and this is not some, you know, we're talking about like proven mathematically, is proven, nobody knows how many digits the Graham number has, but I think we, you, they know the last four or five digits of that number. Okay. And what's interesting about the Graham number is that he mathematically proved that if you add one to the gram number, you go back to zero. If you add one to the gram number... You go back to zero. So like negative one? Nope. The gram number is enormous. <laughs> it's Googleplex to gram number is like Googleplex to one. It's like, it's something like out there. It's like so close to infinity that, that you know, but, and I don't even, so, so here's the thing. When you just say what I just said, it's like, I don't even know what you're talking about. I, it sounds like you're just making shit up. But if you want to rely on what mathematics does, which we do, right? For, yeah. to, to go to space, to like do everything. It's proven by the same methods. So the, so the Graham number is actually, it's, uh, it's actually in the Guinness World Records. Yeah, yeah. So it's in, in the Guinness uh, uh, Book of World Records as the largest number. But here's an, here's an idea from pure so mathematics. It's the largest number. number. Yes. So now, now, obviously, infinities are different because they're not numbers. So they're, they're a different group of things. But here's, I, here are ideas that if you present them to, like, a, obviously not to, like, you know, let's say even to teenagers, that's already, like, your mind is, is already expanded enough to kind of, like, wait, what? So, like, I, I totally see how if somebody would present me that... I'll be mesmerized forever. I'll be like, okay, I want to know everything there is to know about whatever I need. I'm going to do anything I need to understand what the fuck that means. So I, I always say like that, that should, I, and by the way, I don't even think it's that hard to do that, which is like to set up the educational system in a way that you just present, you dedicate like two or three lessons to just present the wildest shit in the field. You get them excited first. Yeah. That's the, that's the whole point. Yeah. You know, 
And along with that is if you get if you get excited about the things that you're teaching, people want to learn. Yeah. Like do I, I'll tell you a fun story really fast. So, uh just about being excited and interesting of what you're talking about. So, um on my on my Instagram post, I normally have a question that goes along with it cuz I want to know like I want to know about the people that are reading my stuff. And um and so the question that I opened up with is what is something that you're interested in that you feel like nobody else is interested in? That's an interesting question. Yeah. And there were people and they wrote down easy answers, whatever. And then there was this one girl. Um, she is an amazing space artist and we've been friends ever since this day. But she started... Sorry, when you say space artist, you mean she, astrophotographer? No, oh, she paints... Paints space. Like space. Okay. Um uh, Dr. Lacey. Yeah, she just got a doctorate. Super congrats. But she went on this giant rant about Blue Jays. And in my head, when I, was, when I started reading it, I was thinking, I can give a fuck about Blue Jays. But she was so into it and got so excited to tell me about Blue Jays, it couldn't fit on one comment. So she had to write two comments. And I got so interested reading it. I literally reached out to her. It's like, please tell me more about Blue Jays. I want to learn more about Blue Jays. And she started telling me more about Blue Jays. And I got so into it. And I thought it was so cool. And now she's the girl that I go to about any sort of bird questions. Because that's like her thing. Like she loves birds. Like bird watching and stuff? Stuff like what that, you, yeah. Okay. She, just, she just knows a lot about them. Like all the hummingbirds and stuff that I have over at my place. It's like... I, I show her pictures and she's like, well, the males have this and the females have that. And these are Arthur, Arthur Blue Jays, I think, Albert Blue, something like that. I, I have it written down. But like, blue, uh, not Blue Jays, hummingbirds. And like, she knows her stuff. And I appreciate her so much for always being there anytime I have a question of like, yo, what kind of bird is this? I actually fully agree. I, I never understood... Um people who get bored by people who are into their thing it's like oh this person just want to talk about that i'm like that's amazing like that's the thing that is so interesting because they see things in it that a lot of people don't and that's the the exploration i guess because you would never take the time to do it but so because somebody else did it's fascinating to hear them talk and i think that's why listening to experts talk in general is interesting yeah because they have this like air of like a style of talking about the thing. There's like such an affection for what they do and the thing that it's just mesmerizing. It's just, there's something so infectious about it. Yeah. It's not just saying a fun fact. It's making the fun fact fun. Yeah. And, uh, and, and making it so you want to learn more. Like if I'm excited enough to talk about something and you're like, like, I want you to want to know more than what I'm about to tell you. And I think you want to interest, you want to interest the other person. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a good quality of a teacher. That's something I wish more teachers that I had growing up. Like, (laughs) it's like, all right, everybody today, we're going to lose uh, mathematics. Okay. Uh, One of my favorite (laughs) thinkers is, his name is, uh, yeah, Mr. Mackey from, uh, (laughs) okay. Um, His name is Joshua Bach. Uh, I think he's actually a descendant of the Bach. And um, he's a, this German computer scientist, but also cognitive scientist. And there's some... I actually don't agree with him on everything, but there's just some there's some symmetry. There's some... Um, 
elegance and aesthetics to how he thinks and expresses himself. Like just seeing the lines along which he thinks, it just, it puts me at ease. Like it gives me peace. There's something so neat and well, German about it. But uh, he he once said that he, he realized that he grew up as a nerd and he gave a nerd a very technical definition. It said a nerd is someone who treats every conversation with another human being as if they're presenting their own dissertation. (laughs) <laughs> oh, I take that. It's <laughs> like you're trying to prove a point versus a thing, or well, not prove a point, but like you, you, you think that you're outlining a thing in the best way possible. That that's the thing that you're trying to do. You're yeah. like trying to make the other person familiar with that thing that you're trying to talk about. Mm-hmm. And I and I connect to that a lot. I, it's also why I connect to weird people, because weird people they're just like you don't you don't know. First of all, you have no idea what they're into, but also. You have no idea how they're going to express that thing that they're into. That's that, the that's... sweetest thing anyone's ever called me. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, no, I mean, uh, you, you're pretty weird, but there's some people that I met, I was like, oh, that is so interesting. I'm going to die in this interview today. <laughs> <laughs> do you ever see, uh, do you ever watch Lex Friedman? No. Uh, so he's also, he has like a podcast and uh, one time he's he has this like, very monotonic like cold like kind of like speech pattern oh no and he's russian no he's i mean he's very successful uh but what's interesting is that when he jokes you're not really sure what's going on and what uh, there's a few times in which he literally threatened the lives of guests like as a joke <laughs> and they're like and he's also you know he's like he's like one of the he has a he's an mit professor but he also has like a black belt in brazilian jiu-jitsu and he's like one of those like and he's just like uh, somebody's something along the lines of somebody said something is like well you know we're still alive and then you just look at it was like well the interview is still pretty young and it's just like didn't say anything else and the guy's like oh no 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 one time he literally said how would you feel about dying before the end of this interview or something like that it was like something so fucking crazy it just didn't choose your words too correctly there buddy <laughs> it was supposed to be some philosophical, you know, like query, and, and then the guy was like, "Wait, what? <laughs> what, what are we doing here?" <laughs> so, you take me home. <laughs> um, what else did I want to ask you about? Oh, uh, so something that uh, I I told you before we got on air that I always forget that you are, but then you post, you know, something. I was like, "Oh, right." Mac is also a musician. I always forget that for some reason. Because you don't post a lot of that, but when you do, it's amazing. Um, I, don't you know, so, I don't know if I really consider myself a musician. Well, you play the guitar pretty damn well. Thank you. you. You started playing when you were pretty young, right? 13, yeah. 13. So and uh, we, did you ever play in a band? or? Yeah, I had a few bands growing up. Um, so you're a musician. Yeah, I mean... You no, mean you're I, not no. a professional musician now who makes money like doing uh, it, right? That's. I mean, I, it's more... Like I'm a musician, I, I I accept that, but like, I'm more of just a noodler. Like that's what I consider myself as. Like, please that, explain. I don't know what that means. It's like I mean, it's not a, a real term, but it's more of a, like, I just pick up something and I just noodle around. I just play whatever comes to mind. I I don't write songs anymore. I don't like learn other people's stuff anymore. Like I mean, I do ever like very rarely, but I kind of just. Whatever comes to mind for the day, I'll, I'll write something and then I record it, post it up on on Instagram, and then it's normally forgotten within a day or two. But you're not trying to push the envelope. You're not trying to like develop 
music. No, like, that's uh, not. It's just a. Hobby. That's what you mean. Yeah. Okay, but there's. It so, used to be a profession, though. Like, I went to school and got my degree in music. So. So you're definitely a musician. Classical composition. So. How much of the? I'm sure you know the meme, which is like there's a lot of uh, similarity between symmetries that, uh, that we find in nature and like the mathematics we find in music. Did you ever like, like how much how much truth do you think there is to that? Like, do you like do you ever encounter like a, you know, I don't know, like something in space that kind of reminds you of a very particular melody in a way that is almost like jarring, or do you feel like people over overly romanticizing this kind of stuff? Well, I mean, I think I think there are emotions in space that I don't know if that's what you're trying to get. Because there, there's this relationship between symmetries, like visual symmetries, and music, right? And also colors, by the way. Are you so saying, I wonder, are you talking about like those pictures where people like they take the the photo and you see the little thing going across and you hear the different wavelengths and stuff? No, no, I'm talking very very particular. So there's a there's this. Um, the relationship between the uh, between the color wheel and I forget what it's called. Is it the wheel of fifths or something? I'm gonna show circle of fifths. Circle of fifths. Yeah. yeah. So there's this crazy relationship between like they they cor- correspond to each other pretty pretty incredibly. And I actually read a whole article about this once. Um, so I always wonder if there's a when people are musicians if they ever encounter a moment in which like it becomes apparent to them. So it's like, you know what I mean? Like you hear a certain piece. So it's almost like, um, so I always, okay, so maybe I need to preface this a little bit. I feel that whatever emotional imprint things have, like we tend to think of it in very subjective terms. Like, well, that's just how you feel. What do you mean? Like somebody else would feel something else looking at the same thing or hearing the same thing. True. However, there are certain things like, we can all recognize a sad note. Yeah. So what is that, right? It's like, why is that note sad? So obviously it has something to do with how we're built. And um, maybe some individuals won't feel sad, but most individuals will. Like they would recognize there's something like a, like a, like a, mm, like a, like a thing there, right? So my thing is that I think that those, there's some things that are subjective, but some things are objective. They're like, somehow in nature they're like uh it's almost like the qualia of sadness and the qualia of that note your experience of that note corresponds to something that is actually well i guess in nature it wouldn't be sad but it would be something that we experience that we experience as sad yeah well i mean in music you've got things like major chords and minor chords and major chords are normally supposed to sound happier and when you hear a major chord you're just like it, it it's like an uplift uplifting thing versus a minor chord it's normally more of a sad or, or melodramatic kind of of thing and so there are definitely ways to style music to influence certain kind of emotions because of the frequencies of sound and how they all kind of go along with each other and that's what the circle of fifths is is it's basically finding chords or or notes to that line up in frequencies. So let's say your A, like a C chord, for example, has a C, an E, and a G in it. Those three notes, their peaks of their um, wavelengths all line up with each other. So are they a but, perfect harmonic, basically? 
yeah, there are it's a harmonic chord, but uh, obviously some some of those notes will go faster than the others, but they always will line up with each other, and that's what creates harmony. Versus if you have something like if you play in an F and an F sharp together, you have dissonance. So two wavelengths that never line up with each other. And um, I don't know if I really see a, a correlation between that and like space or astrophotography. It, I, I think they're pretty... I feel like maybe the the connection between the visual field and that is a little bit too obscure, but maybe something a little bit more immediate, which is that they both give off their emotions for sure. Like I do astrophotography just it isn't just like a you look at a picture and whatever. Like I definitely, especially going stargazing and when you're under the stars, like you definitely have emotions and all those things can influence writing. And actually, now that I think about it, I think normally when I'm, if I bring a guitar out and I'm stargazing and I'm thinking about the things I normally think about under the night sky, it's like, I tend to play with more minor chords, more mellow. Is it like more melancholic? Yeah. Never really thought of that. Hmm. So it's the environment basically influences the production of whatever the unit that you are it makes you do this thing basically yeah. when you're exposed to that thing i guess I'm, so that's an interesting you actually took it in a more interesting direction than i even intended so i appreciate that uh but i but i guess i'm always thinking like my mind always thinks is it a quirk of how we're built or is it possible that whatever is sad in the note is really sad like is sadness does sadness exist like, does sadness exist as a thing and that we pick up on it and we have the ability to feel it? Or is it purely a human emotion that has nothing to do with something more objective? That's always my thought. And the, the more, like, the modern mind tends to always answer this question with a very simple, yeah, it's, of course it's just human. It's just our perception. But... But then you look at dogs and cats, and you can tell when they're feeling a type of way. And the, do they respond to the same note? That that would actually be a great test. If if other species respond to the sadness of a certain note, if if somehow we could measure, you know, like uh, I don't know, with a functional MRI or something. Yeah. If uh, like whatever sadness correlates with the brain waves in a dog, and then maybe we can see if when you play a sad note, does the dog get sad? Does the cat get sad? They'll be interested. Does the Arcnit, uh, as all the Arcnids get sad? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, they're pretty perceptive in general. I mean, normally if you're sad, they can pick up on that. But I wonder if they respond to the so, whatever's in the wise, note. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just a thought. Because I, I always pause on these things because I don't know if they're as obvious as people like them to be. Yeah. There's, there's Sometimes there's this thing where kind of like the quote-unquote rational mind just want to put things in a box and say... That's that. We know that, right? But then when you allow for things for a second, you're like, well, yeah, but where does that moment of experience exist? Like if if it's just, you know, a product of the brain, how does it relate to the thing that actually gives rise to it? So obviously, you know, the, the, the hard problem of consciousness and all that. And then... That kind of stuff, when you start thinking about it without any parameters to to grab it, just as, as obscurity, then it starts bending your mind. But when you think about it in terms of, 
experiences that we're all familiar with, then I feel that the picture is not as uh, obscure. It's not as opaque. Yeah. And I think music is a great example because music, we all know what music sounds like. Well, it, we all respond to music. And I think music really illustrates some of those points, which is like there's some things that are subjective and some things that seem to be... Like, I don't know any person that will listen to Shine On You Crazy Diamond and think this was about, uh, you know, uh, a day a day in the zoo or, or or something like super happy with your kids. Like, obviously, yeah. there's something there that is like... And we can all agree on that. And that's my point. Like, yeah. why is it that we can all agree on that? You know, I, I really enjoy asking people what their story that they hear or see is when they hear Moonlight Sonata. Because I feel like it's different for everybody. Some people, it's a super sad thing. Uh, some people think it's a love story, but like a happy love story. Um, I, I hear so many different versions of what it is to people that it is so different. And I remember in college, I, re I read a book called... I think it was called The Theory of Harmony, and it's about wavelengths. Like, it really gets into wavelengths of sound and how harmonies or dissonance um, affect the brain. Um, but then it also gets into the idea that it affects our brain in a certain way because is that just because that's how it is or is it because that's how we we have evolved as we've we've heard this sound so many ways that for i'll give you an example when when a when an alarm goes off on your phone or whatever but like an actual yeah. not like a melodic alarm but yeah like, so it's completely off like the waves are right, way off right or or the sound of a, a car horn Mm -hmm. Those two notes are two notes right next to each other. It's it is like an F and an F sharp. So they're designed to jar you, to not exactly. They're designed so those wavelengths never add up to each other, and it creates a sense of unease. Unease, exactly. Um, like, is there any creature that you think that will find these notes together pleasant? That's that. That's the that's, question. That isn't was it? the question, and that's something that that book touches on too. Is Is this something that has just been ingrained into us over time, over hearing things for so long that that's how it is? You know, if you even back to when you hear thunder or lightning strike and, and all those things, like that sound, that's dissonance. It's not harmonic. It's not like, it's not a beautiful sound. It's a scary sound. And so we, over so many years, and this is just part of the book, and like I, I, I can see definitely where it comes from. You, from hearing things like that or rocks falling or whatever it is, do we feel or do, do we have the sense of sadness or fearful for sounds of dissonance versus let's say if, let's say if life was different and the sound of thunder was beautiful and harmonic as we know now, or landslides or earthquakes and all these things sounded beautiful and harmonic would the beautiful and harmonic things now be something scary that's a really good question so yeah just something to think about i think the reason that this kind of stuff interests me it's not just like general questions that you ask when you get high or something is that <laughs> i i genuinely am interested in how different we are because i think that most people 
um, it's true that we're individuals, but I think people took the idea that we're, we're incapable of understanding each other a little bit too far. And it seems to me like that just unmerited. Like, I feel like there's enough commonalities between human beings. Because think about it, we, won't, we won't, wouldn't even be able to communicate if we would just be so different, right? There's, there has to be a bridge. I'm not you. I don't have your, you know, problems and I don't have your aspirations, but I can understand them, right? Yeah. And then it's just a matter of degree. Like, yes, I'm not a woman, but I'm sure I can understand certain things about being a woman if a woman is explaining it to me in a way that connects to other emotional uh, signatures that I have that it can kind of translate, right? But see, that involves listening. And that Uh, is something a lot of people don't do well. Especially when you're trying to play uh, uh, a meal for an Asian family. (laughs) Even though I would sit there. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that is true. I I think you're right. People just want to talk and not really listen. And I think that was the case for most of history. But I feel like, you know... Yeah, with social media, you have way less of that because it just amplifies the signal of just you wanting to say your thing and you think that everybody are listening, basically. I don't think people really understand... Like, people definitely underestimate how the power of listening. I think listening is actually one of the most important things in Yeah, that's world. interesting. But listen, what I wanted to say... <laughs> <laughs> I thought about doing that to you when you were talking to <laughs> but it's like and it's more it's it's so much more than just listening to each other talk too it's listening to how people move it's like are you i mean yeah sure like that's watching but like well paying attention right i think listening in the broader sense of paying attention like truly being open to Mm -hmm. whatever is coming from the other side exactly what is trying to be expressed being perceptive of yourself and your surroundings and the stuff around you like i've always said you know oh damn do i get into this yeah fuck yeah okay i've always said that like the best sexual partners are the people that listen and it's not about listening to like things like moaning and whatever but like don't get me wrong that's a great part but it's also like you have to listen to someone's vibe you have to listen if someone's enjoying something that you're doing or want something more and whatnot. And you can tell a lot of this stuff if you just kind of open your mind to like watching the situation and like listen. Yeah, this really just comes down to listening. And or even if you're just in a room with a party and whatnot, and um, it's like you can you can tell a lot about someone and where you're connecting and where you're not connecting is if you're just listening. And along that line, and and what you were saying too is, I think that we all have so much in common, even if we're so different. And I think we start to lose a lot of that commonality. Is that even a word? I think so. I think it is. Yeah. Um, Because in this day and age, I feel like we're so wanting to divide everything into. in fact, Tool writes a song. Tool's one of my favorite bands, and they have a song called Right Into, and it's about how we were born as a, a, just a human. And then we divided it into two. This is a biblical sense, but like then we became male and female. And then Oh, interesting. And then you start dividing it into religions. And there's a bunch of religions now. And then there's 
blacks and whites and then there's this that and the other and then there's now sexual orientations and then other kind of like there's so many different ways to identify yourself even as even just in jobs it's like are you an astrophotographer are you a photographer are you like i think humans in general have gotten so used to wanting a specific classification for themselves and what that's doing is it just keeps dividing things and i feel like the more that we divide things the more things that we the more ammo we have to not like another group and but notice that it doesn't have to follow from the other so like the fact that there's divisions and categories doesn't mean that you should be bothered by the existence of the other categories oh, like for me it's exciting right yeah. so it's like it's exciting that you're different because i get to explore a different div- it's almost like if life was this enormous thing one thing that just explores the universe through experience then you're not a node of experience that i'm not yeah exactly and I, and I get to learn i get to be exposed to whatever your node of experience is exposed to without actually being exposed to it because i can only live one life at a time right right so you, it doesn't you follow that you have to like i don't understand the whole so like there's certain things that you know when i hear people say them like i just like Sometimes it rubs me the wrong way just simply because I know that the place they're coming from is not a positive place. And I think that by itself bothers me. But it's not what they're saying. It's like, if you think differently, by all means. But, yeah. I, but it's not, a, it's not a, an automatic thing that means that because you think differently, I need to not enjoy your company. Or that, that's, kind yeah. of, that's kind of crazy to me. It's almost so, like uh, people like... Oh, you're one of those people, or you think like that. It's almost like I'm now. I, I now believe that I know everything there is to know about you because I put you in that category, and now I don't want to interact with you. When in reality, if you would interact with the people that are the weirdest, those are the people that you would learn the most from because they're so different than any than how you approach life. Yeah, it sounds. It sounds to me like those kind of people really only want to be friends with themselves. Yeah, people, so, like so a it's a very narcissistic kind of, yeah. of themselves. Um, I, I'm atheist and don't believe in anything, but dude, do I love going to like... Those microphones exist. <laughs> do I love going to like religious like parties or, or, or cultural things or whatever? Because it's like you really get immersed into something else that's different from yourself and like all those things. And I think it's so... In- I think it's fascinating to learn all these things. Like you should want to enjoy these things. Unfortunately, you get you get both sides of it though. You get people that will hate one group because they're not your group, and then you have people that get interested in learning everyone and like that you, they want to make that their living is to like immerse themselves into so many other people's cultures, which I think is great. You mean like anthropologist? Or you? Yeah, stuff. Like, I mean, just any. Even even if I wanted to go to like israel or something it's like that's just me putting myself in someone's culture and like i i loved when i did go like it oh i didn't know that you go there oh maybe you mentioned it by passing and i actually forgot yeah one a few years ago oh cool uh is it like birthright or yeah okay yeah did you go all over such a great trip to visit yeah (laughs) yeah it's always nice to recommend it for everybody (laughs) but it's a lot of great food but like i was saying it's like even just just going to a different place, I think, counts as like putting yourself. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. 
No, I, th- I think that, that that openness, which by the way, I guess if I have to be honest, to some degree, I was guilty of that uh, in different ways. Like when I, uh, I guess when I consider myself more like along those lines of like a hardcore atheist in the sense that I reject any proposition of, of a creator of a, or a god. And then every person who spoke too seriously about the the what for them seems to be obvious that, you know, God exists or something more specific like that Jesus specifically is the son of God or like the more specific God, the more it bothered me. Like it's like yeah, what justification it. you have to right. So to some degree, like I never played a like a social role in the sense of like I would I would never like not engage with an individual. But inside, yeah, there was like this weird like oh, how yeah. do you even like how do you even get there? We all but have the, opinions and stuff like Yeah, but I feel like it was more than an opinion. It was like I couldn't I couldn't like that bridge that I'm talking about, like trying to like understand. I would never engage in those conversations which I would really try and understand because I thought that even thinking like that is somehow not engaging with the facts for what they are so either you didn't educate yourself enough those were my thoughts right or you uh simply are you know you just this is this no this is this this is this is wishful thinking and you just you know you're afraid to die or something like that but the older i got the more it became obvious to me that Conviction, 100% conviction of anything is that that is the problem always because the world is so complex that maybe the thing that they mean by the word God is something that they it's something completely different to them but they're simply they don't live in a world in which they're playing a game in which it matter it even matters to them to explain to you what they mean by God they never think about that they yeah. just like it it kind of you know it, it it it's an expectation well the, it, it appropriates something in their lives right it, it does something for their social coherence it does something for how they feel that's all they know they don't care right so this right. is just one example i think too that as long as they're not being destructive that's that's the important part for me like you can believe in whatever you want to believe as long as as long as you're not hurting anybody and you know what I actually kind of support religion in a way because I think it gives some people a sense of meaning or belonging or comfort. Uh, I think people, people fear what they don't understand. People fear what they don't, what they, what they can't comprehend exactly. And like the thought of an afterlife of like a heaven or hell or where, when, you know, how did the universe get created? Where, where did we come from? All these questions. It's like, we don't actually have an answer for them. Like, we don't know what happens when we die. We don't know exactly how the universe was created. And, um, and so I think the idea of God gives people comfort. And I'm all down for people getting comfort. What I really want to know is if we ever decide, if we ever prove in some way that God exists or does not exist so i think are people going to how are people going to react oh you mean in a scenario in which uh we have a conclusive answer to that 
Yeah. If let's we, say we discover tomorrow that God actually exists, how would people react to that? Is what you mean? Yeah. Like that's an interesting thought. Let's say if if God actually came to Earth and whatever and showed His divine power or whatever, would people would the atheists believe it? Would they be like, okay, now I'm a religious person, or the opposite way around? What if we did find actual things that say God doesn't actually exist, and here's the person that wrote the Bible, and like, like well, it was just a story made up to like give people hope? Like, would would religious people no longer be religious? Like, so I think what, that's first of all, that's a really interesting line of questions. Because that is a great question. Because I think that... Okay, so first of all, I think that those are two separate things. Like, the, the proving that God exists is very different than proving that God doesn't exist. Because you can't do that. Even if we know that people wrote the Bible. It, the only question is, was it, like, divinely inspired, right? So, let's say we prove without a doubt that it wasn't divinely inspired somehow. Mm-hmm. That still doesn't prove there's no God. So, it's like, disproving something is pretty much impossible right they can always be hiding somewhere but let, but the question of if we discover there is something like a god what would be the situation well let me ask you this because i think it's a category thing what i mean by that is that would you say that there's a difference between discovering there's a level several 11 7 and Kardashev scale civilization versus there's a God. Would you say that there's a difference? The civilization that whips, whips out universes, just like makes universes. Mm. Or do you think that it's fundamentally, what is meant by the word is actually different? Like there's something, there's a quality to what God is that is different than any level of civilization. I mean, I think that changes for everybody. Some it depends. No, for you, I'm asking you. Oh, for me personally, yeah. I... I wouldn't even know what I would classify God as. You see, that's what I mean. That's like... That's exactly my point, that it's a category thing. Like, when you ask people what they actually mean by that... So, like, what we talked about before, which is, like, you tell them... old white guy from the Middle East. From the Middle East? Yeah. Wasn't Jesus from the Middle East? He was. Yeah, they made him, like, white with, like, long hair. (laughs) That's it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Jesus is a white dude. And he's a Republican, too. (laughs) There you go. So, like, did you ever think about that? Because I find the question you just posed fascinating. Because I personally think... So, I'll give you kind of, like, my impression of it, and then you tell me what you think about that. Sure. So, I'm... Funny enough, I'm actually in a position now that I will have to start interacting with people on a certain level in a way in which you present something that is coherent, based in, you know, in actual observations, the way that we used to do them and then the result you get seems to be so crazy that the question you're asking will have to actually come into view which means that if i present you with enough rigorous evidence that something is out there along the lines of something that you you know you didn't want to consider you didn't think is possible but let's say we show that this is to a pretty high degree of of certainty yeah. possible. What do you do then? My intuition tells me that all those scientists who all day long uh, champion the rigorous thinking and the ability to spin on a dime if more evidence comes in, my intuition is that's a lot of virtue signaling. Mm. 
My intuition is that those scientists have the same amount of bias that religious people do. And I'm not placing them in the same category. Don't get me wrong. No, there's, no, there's a big difference between believing something just on faith and believing something because it belongs in family of things that we invested hundreds, well, not hundreds, but at least 150 years uh, of like actual engaging with modern science as it is from technical standpoint. There's a difference there in the methodology and in, in how much you allow yourself to be fooled, all that stuff. Well, faith However, is the, uh, faith is kind of the, the, the belief in absence of evidence. So Yeah, yeah. So what I'm saying is that I'm not placing them in the same category. Yeah. However, I am, again, that's my intuition. Right. That if you go to, you know, let's take someone specific, someone who's very vocal on the subject. Let's say uh, Richard Dawkins, right? He's very big on, on, on flagging this idea that uh, he doesn't take anything on faith. And if, if, you know, if, if certain evidence would present itself for certain things, he would have to change his mind, no problem, and he would do it. And no matter how painful it is, he would have to stick with what the facts are telling him. Yeah. And I heard somebody make this distinction. I don't remember who it was. I wish I would. Actually, it might have been Joshua Bach. And he said that his... Or it might have been Bernardo Castro. It doesn't matter. Some, some, some great thinker. And uh, he said that he believes that that only applies to what's called the small the small changes the small theories so like if you worked on a little thing even if it's your line of research and you wanted to prove that this thing manifests itself in this category or in this temperature and then somebody comes and shows you that it it doesn't right no problem most scientists would you know take their losses and like okay doesn't work move on yeah however he says that if it has to do with how you define yourself to be in other words the specific thing you ask if right now i would say at someone like richard dawkins if you present certain proofs because you know no proof would be ever fully conclusive but let's say you have the same amount of evidence that for all of a sudden the existence of something like a god that you have for the existence of black holes let's say that happens my feeling is that that thing that now will push Richard Dawkins to reassess everything about his life and everything that he thought and therefore reassess his own existence, I think he would have just as hard of a time with that and he would not give that ground up till the day that he dies. Just like a religious person would if you're trying to take Jesus away. That's my, that's my intuition of that. I think... I, I I agree with you. I think it really. I think it all just comes down to how humble are you. You mean presenting the idea? Are you open to accepting the idea that your beliefs were wrong? It's kind of like. It's like. How do I say it? It's like. What would it take for you to believe that God exists? Can you imagine a set of events that will convince you? A proof of God. A like proof what, of what, some what does sort that of mean? divine. Like someone that came down flying or I don't know. What, I, it but, 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 that, but, does it, but doesn't it sound like a caricature version of what most people think God is? Like what if it presents well, itself in a way that... Would you, would you think that whatever... Let's say that there is a God or something on that level. Would you really think that would, it would be 
anything like what we think it is? Or would it be so unfathomable, like that level of, of like existence, that it might manifest itself in ways that don't match what you expect to see? Yeah. So it's like, yeah, and this, that's the thing, too, is like we don't know what he looks like or what he sounds like <laughs> or if it's a he or she or anything in between, like, or an it. So that's what like, I'm asking. So like, would there be anything that can happen in your life outside of the caricature version of like, a, 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 you know, Jesus coming on a chariot? I think I think the moment that something or someone or whatever this God decides to appear as can prove in some way that he created the universe. And again, prove that he created the universe. But what, what does that look? What would that look? I'm not trying to push you. I'm just no, no, no. I'm fascinated. No, like, what I'm, would that I'm trying look? to think what of this. Would, okay. I just like I don't know, like little spaghetti noodly <laughs> appendage touching my my forehead, and all of a sudden I see the creation of time. Like, wait a second, wait a second, because that's possible, right? Maybe not the spaghetti part, but the certain substances, right? Like DMT, for example. That if you do them while you're on them, there's a very strong sense that something is going on. That is more than what you thought is going on. Now, yeah. now the tendency we have is obviously to say, okay, but that's something we don't understand about the brain and the story. However, if something exists outside of the model that we're used to think about as like our modern perception of the world, why would it necessarily be in the inside the domain that you're already used to looking at like yeah. why can't it be a like why can't it be so it, are there qualities to experiences that when you have them if you have them often enough and you if you have them enough times you have to reassess yeah i i view it very much very similar to how i view aliens and the existence of aliens so it's the idea of Knowing, knowing the facts of what is going on right now, but also being open to the idea of otherwise. Like, and I actually, I'll go into saying that I think that's, that is how it should be for everything is like, you, ha you should know there, there has to be a line between fact and theory. And it's a very distinguishable line between fact and theory. And you need to believe the fact, but also know that the theory could be right at some point too. but you realize that that the facts mean nothing without the theory yeah in fact facts don't become facts without theory exactly For so they go point, so so facts are theory laden like like but not every theory pans out to be a fact in fact most don't. no no, no. They're, they're two different things though so like right. so if we so just to separate those two right so there's the the colloquial term of using the word theory as a hypothesis which is like a thing we assume to be and then there's a scientific theory which is a body of explanatory uh you can call them stories but they're essentially narratives right right that that encapsulate a lot of observations that we either measure with instruments or we study with mathematics or in most cases both. Mm -hmm. And if the theory can account for a lot of observations from pretty simple initial conditions, then we would say that the theory is more correct than another theory that can't do as much, right? So the theory in that sense yeah, is just it's, it's just kind of like a model you're looking at the world through and a fact is an observation you're making on at the world a theory is can never be an observation it's the explanation you give the observation so the only question then is 
how good is your explanation? Now, sci- now let me just kind of like trail off this point and then I'll, I'll let you respond. But a lot of scientists would say, and this is a whole school of thought, especially in harder sciences like physics, there's this, the, the big, you know, there's, there was a whole school of thought and still exists today, which is just shut up and calculate, which is like, don't worry about the why. That's not the business we're in. Let's just see if we can do something with it that is useful. No, Period. Why, end of story. Why is so important? Exactly. So I'm with you on that, which is the real science. Like the and you know, obviously, you know, we, I think everybody every, are free to perceive thing. it as, as as they want. But the way that I perceive science as an enterprise, it is the attempt to understand the why is as much as to understand the technical aspects of how the why unfolds. I think the why is the most important thing in everything you do. You, you have to have a why. Why are you doing this? What's the reason for why you why do you want to learn how to do this? Or or it, you know, I think the why in science is what gets us somewhere because the why normally breeds passion. Yes. If you know your why, you breed passion over it, and that's what you want to dedicate your te- yourself to doing. Yeah. No. So I, actually, actually, you said it perfectly, which is the why. Uh, actually. Uh, encourages passion in a way that just looking at the technical aspects doesn't do at all and in fact i don't know if you know this but there are um there's actually a big wave it's almost like a i wouldn't say it's a renaissance because it's it's the first time that we can talk about these things in more technical terms so we talked a little bit before we started about wolfram's stephen wolfram's model of uh the new physics with with hypergraphs but there are there are others. Donald Hoffman, for example. Do you hear the name? Mm. So he's, um, he's a professor in UC Irvine. And he stumbled upon a very interesting model that came from uh, evolutionary game theory. Now, uh, for the audience, maybe you do, but I'll just kind of outline for the audience for shortly. So evolutionary game theory is essentially what we use to measure the probability of development of genetic uh, pools and everything that has to do with biology. Like the math of biology is looked at through the probabilistic uh, game theory, which basically kind of assesses probabilities to things according to evolutionary pressures. So So you're talking about knowing evolution and why they happened the way they did and then thinking about what the next parts of evolution are going what are to be? the pressures what are the limit cases and pressures that are applied to evolution because like right. if you would think about it, like how do they know anything because it's like all kind of like it seems so gooey in general like no there's actually a very strong mathematical framework and that's what makes evolution by natural selection such a strong theory because right. it has evolutionary game theory embedded in it which describes these processes in a pretty mathematical way so what he discovered is that what he tried to do is he tried to see what happens if you show a system, if you expose a unit. Now, a unit in this case, it's not necessarily a biological life form because there's a mathematical description to what a unit is in evolutionary game theory. It's essentially a unit is any, any entity that it, uh, evolves in environments. Right. It, doesn't, it doesn't have to be specifically biological. But the same rules apply to biological and any other. And what he discovered is that you, if you expose um, an entity to know too much about the actual, the specific underpinnings of the space, the real space that gave rise to it, the probability that evolutionary, uh, by natural selection, if, 
evolved us to perceive what that real space is, is zero. So now that, yeah, I had the same response when I heard it for the first time. Because first of all, there's no zero probability of anything ever, which is like a very weird thing. But he then... It's a dangerous thing to always think about, though. So, yeah, yeah. So like we, It's a he, good thing to know the fact that like all the things that we know now might change in the future. You know? What do you mean by that? Like, well, you just said like the probability of, of things we know is like almost nothing and that's true because science is always changing the things that we know are always changing we at one point thought the earth was flat and that we were the center of the universe and that you know um and we challenged that yeah that was so, that so was fact so, right 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 no 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 so i think there's it's always difficult to express this portion of his discovery because there's a way in which he he doesn't pedal back but he explains what is meant by that in probability theory. So it doesn't mean that it can't happen. Zero probability yeah. doesn't mean it can't happen. It can still happen. Yeah. But anyways, it, it, that's not the point. The point is, is that let's just for the sake of argument, the reason I'm saying that is because that's what he says and is very adamant about that. And he doesn't change it. He's not saying close to zero. He's saying zero. Now, that to me plays less of a role of importance in the whole argument because I think the argument is interesting enough without that portion of it Mm -hmm. so let's for the sake of ease of both of us let's just say it's close to zero even though he insists no 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 no, it is zero but we'll say close to zero just so we feel comfortable yeah okay so it's close to zero what he then did is they took it he took it to mathematicians he's not a mathematician but he took it to like famous mathematicians say look i have this thing it's very weird this is not something i expected to get can we test this? So they tested it and they got it again and again and again. So what they did then is that they started running simulations with his undergrads, uh, with his, uh, uh, with his uh, PhD students. And they ran some computer simulations. And what they discovered is that, yes, when you, no matter how many times you do this, if you allow any entity in, let's say, a digital environment, you just give them the general, you know, kind of like those programs that you, they learn how to kind of stand up and then walk and all that stuff. If you expose those programs to what actually gives rise to their environment, in other words, if you give them any information about what a computer looks like behind, like under the hood, what the, you know, uh, logic gates look like and the electric switches and all of that, compilers, then 100% of the time, if it competes with any other entity in that environment that doesn't have to take that into account, it will always lose the evolutionary game to that system so in it, a way you're kind of saying we get dumber by getting smarter no is that what he's saying very specifically is that whatever the true reality is behind whatever this is looks nothing like what we're saying now this is an important point because when you just say what i just said it doesn't sound that radical because we all assume that yeah i mean Obviously, we don't see a lot of particles. We don't see a lot of, you know, we don't see gamma rays. We don't see X. There's a lot of things we don't see. So it doesn't sound radical to say that this is not how the environment looks like. Yeah, we know. Like, this is some approximation that the brain kind of comes up with, right? how we see it from our perspective. Exactly. But what he's saying is more than that. He's saying, no, 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 no. You don't understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying it looks less than less than what you thought it was. It looks nothing like what you think it is 
In other words, he always compares it to uh, to a desktop on a on a on a computer, which is that the folders on the desktop they have no resemblance at all, not even a little They're bit. They're code. They're just numbers. Exactly, but they represent real functions. Right. So, for example, he always says like, if I wrote a book and it took me four years to write the book, then I put it in a folder, and let's say it only lives in that folder. I know I'm not going to drag that folder into the trash bin, even though I know that the trash bin is not a real trash bin. But I know that the function that it that it does, like deleting everything I worked for for four years, that's a real thing. But the folders themselves don't resemble what the computer looks like inside at all. So imagine if creatures would develop on your desktop, and they would develop physics and everything there is to know about how those folders work, and all of a sudden they discover that. You know, when you click this folder, like there's a bug, you click it three times and you go to this thing. You're like, oh my God, we never knew this. It's like, whatever. There's no amount of research and science that those creatures can do in that environment that will ever tell them anything about what a computer looks like, about the thing that actually gives rise to the visual thing where they actually exist. So what he's saying is that we live in a three-dimensional desktop. So we're in the matrix. Essentially. But... It's not, according to his model, it's not like somebody is simulating it. Is that the thing that it actually is, it has this nature that is computational at bottom. And what we call computation is not something we discovered, but it's something we stumbled upon. So it's like the higher level of, of like whatever reality actually is. And the reason I'm saying that is, so, you know, this is, this is an, and what's interesting about that is that they're now proposing ways to talk about certain things in physics and in other in other domains that are like hard sciences to show that they can prove this they can prove this just like you can prove that like if you look at the environment right the first thing that you say is like well you know there's the perception of the environment that i have but what is he proving though like how is he proving that what we see is not all that's there because it sounds like i get the theory behind it sure sure I don't, and and I get that there are there's there really is a whole world that we don't see. You know, our eyes are only our eyes and ears are only perceptive of of a small portion of what actually we can, like. Like you said, there are gamma rays and and infrared and all these things that our eyes can't see, and I'm sure that our ears are exactly the same. There's frequencies that we can't hear. And and colors that we just don't, you know. So, um, so he's unapologetically saying something way more radical than that, right? So, but, so were you saying what is the justification? No. How do you prove something like that? So how? how let's say you were him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you show me? Yeah, the person who that well that the, that this this you, other you, per- you you like you Mac or yeah. another person who just in general let's say me mac let's like how how would you prove to me that this exists so there's two portions to this the first one is to recognize that even the things that you think you know from what you heard other physicists say is something that you mac can't know no you just kind of take their word for it but then that's going off hearsay what do you mean like well no, no no but 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 it's important to recognize because the degree to which that's hearsay is the same degree to which what you accept what CERN discovers is also hearsay for you. 
So they arrived at it in the same methodology. They're not arrived at it in a different methodology. This is an actual competing theory because it deals with reality not from a philosophical standpoint, but from a mathematical standpoint, which is exactly what all the scientists at CERN are doing. So when somebody is saying that they measured the existence of the Higgs boson, nobody has ever seen the Higgs boson. This is where the word theory comes in. What the observation is theory-laden, which means that we have this very, very robust assumption about what the world is supposed to do if we're right about it. Right. And then we do a certain thing to it, we probe it, and if in a set of enough of the criteria that we set in place in advance, statistically, present itself as true, then we have more confidence that whatever model we built has this quality that we call true. So we would say that uh, that uh, quantum field theory is correct or the most correct thing we have is because most of the observation that we, we try and do in particle accelerators give us the numbers we expected to see. Let's take, for example... But do you uh, understand what I'm saying there? Yeah. Okay. And then, and then, and I'll let you say your piece, but I just want you to recognize this little point that you, Mac, have never run those tests. You yeah. assume that the people at CERN know what they're doing, which yeah. you're justified to do. I do the same thing. Yeah, like I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna pretend that I know more than they do. Well, or, or you're not gonna pretend even that you really understand how they do it. Yeah. Okay. So that's like the I, first portion of this. Give right? me the fucking cliff notes. Like. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So not, I, not you. I mean, like that. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> but 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 he does give cliff notes. I, yeah. I'll tell you what there. But I, I'm interested to hear what you wanted to say right now before I tell you that. I'm just saying, like. Let's take let's take the, the the gravity waves, which we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. You're talking about collisions between like black holes and neutron stars that create gravitational waves, right? That right. go through that go through space, and and we were able to detect detect them maybe right. what ten years ago, something like that. Uh, maybe I think like six less. years ago, yeah. Yeah, um, that theory, which became a mathematical equation, and everything was was invented by. Albert Einstein and but it was always and it was like a it was a well-known theory it was never proven no but the theory still remained the theory the word theory remains right it remained right it's the most accepted theory theory. and it it will always remain a theory because it can always be displaced by something that is and probably will be by something that is more comprehensive right but the second like you have I quantum said, gravity, you're going to have a different theory that replaces Einstein's field equations. Right. But for me, and the way that my my head works, sure, is there's a line of fact and theory, and I will I I don't want to say that something is fact until the theory has been proven by multiple people, whatever, like sure. all over, like that's how it is. Take for example, uh, like gravity waves. Every, a lot of people knew about gravity waves and it was taught like this is how it is but I but didn't scientists would not say that it's true that it's a legit thing until we actually proved it but we know that gravity waves exist we don't know if we do the, now no 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 what I'm saying is that we don't even after we discovered they existed we still don't know if the model we have of what gives rise to those waves is the most robust model we can get. We still don't yeah. know that. So yeah. that's not so scientists would never say it's a f- it's it's true. They would say it's the most likely explanation. 
Well, we at know, the moment. But we know that gravity waves exist now. Yeah, but you only know that within the context of how we choose to look at them. So they might be a different thing. Oh, yeah, we could totally find something else that changes that around. But I'm just saying, like, as of right now... In no, but that changes moment, your line, though. Like, that changes your line. That, that line you describe between a fact and a theory, that makes that line not as concrete as you think it is. I mean, what is really concrete? Like, Well, that's, some things are more concrete than others, and yeah, that's the only point. But... By the way, all of that is not some kind of a soup of um, philosophical tricks yeah. to get people off the scent that something is off here. This is just a recognition that is important to keep online if you want to talk about how what are the cliff notes that he can give you yeah. in order to, to prove to you that this is a more likely explanation. I would say that's, if, the, that's the only thing. If he came up to me and said... Yo, Mac, yo. can you sing me that uh, Chinese family song? <laughs> Uh, no, I'm just saying, like, if he if if he had some way to come up to me and actually prove to me where I could see and hear or whatever that I'm in for like without getting too scientific, whatever, but that I'm in some sort of matrix and that what I'm seeing is so much more complex than what it is. Like, I get the I, I get the, the you get the idea, right? Yeah. No, yeah. Then. Then yeah, I'll believe it in a heartbeat for sure. sure if I could, well, I don't see know if it's in, in a heartbeat. Yeah. So to me, Close so okay. So let me first just kind of share with you that to me, obviously, I have a lot of reservations with some of the things he's saying as well. I'm, I'm I've only presented this case to illustrate an instance in which it's no longer uh, the case that things are as cut and dry as most uh scientists would like it to be and even as a lot of the people who you know who, who yeah. propel this like that uh push this stuff would like it to be uh but in a nutshell the the cliff notes are these again nobody's saying it's a fact you can't possibly know that what he's saying is that the, it's the more likely explanation than than space-time being fundamental and physical space giving rise to the mind somehow yeah because, well, because of a very simple fact in the core of it, which is that if you look at the picture of the world in which you have, first you have the Big Bang, <clears throat> and then somehow after billions of years, all of a sudden you have consciousness arising out of matter, that there seems to be this explanatory gap that, does, that can never meet because there's no amount of detail you can add to, to matter that it will magically all of a sudden make it conscious, or at least... There's no seeming, like, even possible mechanism to do that. So well, you, I mean, evolution started... Well, that doesn't explain consciousness, though. So, so, so you have two problems. So you have uh, the Big Bang, which nobody knows how it actually happened. And you have... Which, that, even that is just theor theoretical. Sure, sure, sure. Like... No, so, so I'm giving you his cliff notes. Yeah. The, the cliff notes are the, these. You have two, two major problems. Big Bang and the hard problem of consciousness. Seem, both seems to be insurmountable because for the Big Bang you can always say but what's outside of that and for the the consciousness there seems to be a problem of a different flavor there but I would say it's not that different that simply there's no seem like what are the actual mechanisms by which all of a sudden matter transitions into feeling conscious right but what he's saying is that well can you define feeling conscious yes so it's the fact that Anything at all is happening for you. So the only thing you can be absolutely certain of 
the, that something is going on right now, right? Right. Right. So now notice something about that experience. There's no examples that you have of any other instance like this. You have one example of this and one example only, which is what you're experiencing from behind your eyes. So you're not comparing it with anything else. You don't even know if I'm conscious. I'm not saying that solipsism is true. I'm just saying that you, as Mac, you have no access to what I'm experiencing or anybody else. So the only thing you know for sure is that something is happening. Unless. If you're a brain in a vat, if the universe is physical, it doesn't matter how it happens. You know something is happening. How do you know it? You don't have to establish it. You just know it because something is happening. So there's just a fact that something is happening for you. Yeah, but that could be any... That's just normal brain patterns and stuff. No, the normal brain patterns is already a description that you're giving to why you think what you think gives rise to this thing called Mac. But you don't know that. And that's a very important distinction. Yeah, that most scientists completely overlook. So you can't actually know... Nobody's saying one or the other. I'm just saying that objectively, in the most rigorous logic you can possibly imagine... You can't know that the way your consciousness arises, it's something about the patterns in the brain. This is a correlation you observe, but as you know, correlation doesn't mean causation. And especially when it comes to this stuff, that you have not little data, but you have no data. You actually don't know at all how that happens. And any scientist would tell you that they do, they're simply lying. So like, there's literally no data on this. Like you, We just don't know. I mean, it's almost like saying we're in a simulation. Not quite. It's not quite, but at the same time, it's the idea of, if you're talking about consciousness of me knowing that I exist in this moment, I mean, one can say that I don't know. No, it's, I would say that you can't say that. Yeah. I would say that, no, 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 I'm saying you can't say that. The one thing you can't say, so like Sam Harris tends to say this, which I agree with fully which is that the one thing you're absolutely sure about is that you're conscious. In fact, the, the probabilistic certainty that you have about that is way higher than even the universe had a big bang or that exists. You, it, like it's, as far as a first-person experience, the only thing you're absolutely sure about is that something is happening. That's it. Now, I, mean, I, I don't want to get bogged down by this because there's like a next point to this. But if you don't see that, then we actually can't proceed to the next point. So if you have a pushback here, I would love to hear it. But I don't really see how you can, how you can deny that something is happening. No, I believe that I'm here right okay. now and I'm but, looking but at you. But do you believe that you're here or do you know that you're here? No, I believe that I'm here. What do you mean you believe? Like you don't know that something is happening behind your eyes? Yeah, this brain. So why are you saying believe? Well. <sighs> no, I'm really interested. No, I'm trying to think of like how to, how to put it in terms. So there obviously is the simulation theory of it all. Forget about that. I know. Just for a second. Let's just focus on this. Do you know for a fact that something is happening? Forget about, I'm not saying simulated, not simulated. Forget about that. I know. Something is happening. I know. In yeah. this current moment in time, I exist. That's it. You exist. This table exists. The people outside exist. The dog under this table exists. So everything that you just added, their appearances in your mind, correct? They are the scientific 
explanation of light hitting you, bouncing and reflecting yeah. off you, coming through my eyes, being turned into data, and that is how I perceive you. Would you know any of this if you would wake up tomorrow on a rock in a desert and not remember anything? Well, if I didn't know anything, then I wouldn't know the science behind the it. The only thing you would know is that something is happening. The only thing I would know is that in that moment, I exist on a mountain. That, you know, let's say you wouldn't even know that it's a mountain. Yeah. The only thing you would know is that something exists. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the starting point. Right. But that's important to remember because most people, and I understand why this is hard, but the density of the informational models that we already build is so close to us that you can't see it. It's like you're looking beyond it. You're starting beyond it. You're starting with like, no, it's light and data. And it was like, no, 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 That's here. I'm asking you about here. So like... This is already a layer of explanations that you've acquired over time. It might be true, but that's not what you get from just observing from behind your eyes. Now, that sounds like a, it sounds like a so what kind of thing, but it really isn't because the whole thing is based. There's something, uh, uh, there's something called, I think it's called idealism, but it's a philosophical take that the only thing you can be sure of is that, and everything else that appears in the world is just representations that appear for you in consciousness. But what it presupposes is that consciousness is fundamental and that everything else that arises are representations that consciousness allows for in order to do whatever it is that consciousness is doing. So now that sounds so flimsy and you say, okay, well, that didn't explain anything. Well, what Donald Hoffman is saying is that if you allow for consciousness being in the center, he can then give you everything else mathematically, including the field equations, all the geometries we see in the world, everything that you can possibly imagine, including all the stuff we'll be discovering in physics. Only now you only have one problem, which is the problem of consciousness, and you don't have to. Because now you don't have to explain how the Big Bang is happening, because you can explain it through what consciousness is doing at the core of what it is. So now you collapse two problems into one, and therefore, statistically, it's the more likely explanation. And that's the simplest cliff note. You'll have to... That's the simple cliff note. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm scared to hear the complicated cliff note. Jesus Christ. I'm going to have to what? What'd you say? You'll have to send me that. Sure, sure. We, 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 can, we can table that. I'll definitely watch it. Yeah, yeah, we can table that. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is, is that, um, there's obviously there's a lot that goes into that and you really need to be exposed to a little bit more of that information from the experts who actually talk on the subject from, from, uh, uh, Hoffman himself. Yeah. Um, but I guess I only made that point to illustrate that that question you asked about God to me, when I heard that for the first time, I had a lot of reservations about it. Just like you kind of have this like, you know, like, what are you talking about kind of thing. I had that for a few reasons, and I still do for a few reasons. But what I learned by experiencing this wave of shock that I've had when I heard it is that I actually carry way more preferences about the world than I thought. Like, maybe I wasn't as open-minded as I thought, because 
here's a, a, an argument that is completely coherent and scientific that is presented to me that might or may not may or may not be true. However, it's presented presented from a person and from a methodology very similar to the same ones we we used to accept. And why would I not give it the time of day if it plays by the same rules that I deem as rigorous, scientific, and all that good stuff? So it made me reassess that, that certain things are way more entrenched in us as belief systems than we think of, even as secular people. Like, we, we have our own belief systems. And I think in the end of the day is, I, I told you this off camera, but I'll just repeat it, which is, for me, the real change will come if we can actually build instruments that we couldn't before, if we wouldn't have accepted some of those tenets, basically. If we, if we, and, and a good example that I, because I try to think of examples of how this would actually look like. And one of the examples that came to me is that there might be certain kind of qualia, you, you know what qualia is, right? It's, it's a quality of perception. So like the, okay. the, the, how you see red is qualia of red. Right. Right. So there might be certain kinds of qualia that we don't see because our models don't allow us to see them. So it's almost like we don't think of them in, des in that way. So it's almost like if you have like a... I mean, humans are only so capable. Yes, but I think that the models are almost like a, a type of a tool. So think of like a random thing. And then your eyes will it can arrange it into like, you know one pattern and then you look at it in a different angle and it arranges it into a different pattern, right? So obviously our brain can perceive different things of the same object, but I think that's not just a way of talking. I actually think that that goes very deep. And according to Hoffman and other people that kind of go along those lines, the laws of physics themselves are a form of how we perceive them and some of it might be due to the models we employ in order to perceive them. Right. So for me, if, you can if all of a sudden we can discover a, a, a shade of color that will allow us to see something in the world that we couldn't see before and therefore develop certain technologies, let's say the case is that if you want to build warp drive, you actually might need to have a certain mind. Maybe, maybe certain ideas that you have to carry or you might need to augment your perceptual tools to such a degree that you can actually interact with what word drive is. It might be that how you perceive the world right now is simply not enough. You might be able to build warp drive, but you yourself might not be able to actually go through the process of being in a pod that goes through warp drive because your ability to perceive what that space is doesn't exist for you at the moment. So if we get to that level... I would say for me, that would be what, what you call right now the, the line that is closer to facts. Like, if we can do that, I'm way more on board. Yeah. I think, though, all these things have to be taken in steps. Yes. Like, I think over overthinking or over over dreaming, I guess. Even if you do come up at a good, like, a point that ends up being true one day. If you're over dreaming then you don't have you, you don't have any of the steps to, I feel like everything that we've learned in science has always been what's the next step sometimes maybe even skipping a step but it's never been like four or five steps ahead it's like to 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 build the airplane 
we needed to know aerodynamics. It wasn't just, I want to fly. I'm just going to fly. It's you had to learn aerodynamics and how, and how to fly. So, uh, it's, you know, to, to learn about space and stuff, we had to learn things at, at, at going, going step by step. So, I don't get me wrong. Anything to learn, I hope we learn. Yeah. And knowledge is power. And I always suggest that people, like I said, fact and theory, I think people, it's, it's important to know fact, but also know theory and to entertain theory because that's how we get new facts. The only difference in this particular example would be, though, is that, and this is an example that Bernardo Castro gives, which is that we might be stuck in a situation, which he he says he's sure that that's the situation we're in, but I would say it might be that we're stuck in a situation where even the smartest physicists on the planet at the moment, they are equivalent to the best video game players in the world. And as you know, a 15-year-old, a 14-year-old can make millions of dollars because he plays this video game better than anyone who has ever lived. But that kid has no idea and no need to know. The electrical engineering, the software engineering, and everything that went into building the game. Yeah. So he's saying that the laws of physics are the game, but we're advancing zero steps towards understanding what the real thing is beneath the hood if we keep looking in that direction so and only in that way this particular way of looking at it of like let's just take it step by step might not be enough because you just this, the direction towards which you're looking to take those steps might not be the right direction you will always can play the game better you, you know you develop whatever but if you understand the underpinnings so again to use the desktop analogy Let's say that the creatures on the desktop all of a sudden discovered this about their reality, that there's some kind of thing that is completely orthogonal to what the desktop looks like. Imagine they would discover what computation is and how to change the code that gives rise to the folders. So instead of trying to figure out how to create better shortcuts inside the folders, they change the code that gives rise to the folders. And that's what is actually being played with here. Hmm. And, that, and that's the difference. So like if we, we might be able to move faster than light because the limitation is in the game. But what if we discover what gives rise to the game and change the code? Again, that's all. <laughs> but that's, but, that, but I, I still think that's just all theory. At the moment, it's absolutely very theoretical. Yeah. Yeah. No, all, all I'm saying is that we, we, we seems to be... You I know mean, what it is for me? I think it's exciting that serious individuals think in those ways because for them, they don't want to waste time. They spent their life trying to understand something. You know, someone like Wolfram who, like, he's a businessman. Oh, he's I a technology builder. He doesn't care about things that don't work. He doesn't care so much about just the theoretical portion of it. So to me, it's exciting that individuals who are capable on that level thinking in those ways. That's what it is for me. I think people like him or, or really anybody uh, who has 
the smart to be able to do what's needed to get to proving or understanding these things, I almost feel like it's kind of their job to really bring that out. I agree. Like me, I'm not smart enough to do that, so I don't do that. <laughs> you know, I stay in my lane. But like, but you you create an amazing lane. Yeah, so I, you know, it, it's a. Uh, I I like understanding things, and I will, and I always try my best to learn as much as I can. I love learning. Like this is this is something, and I feel like we can always get to another level. Yeah. Um, so do you ever... Like, well, like what you were talking about really fast, it's like you are talking about possibly going the speed of light or, or something like that. Or faster. Or faster. You know, there's... there's um, what's, what's the particle that can go faster than the speed of light? At the moment, I'm not aware of one. It's, there's it's, phonons, it, but they're not really particles. Photons go... Phonons. Oh. Yeah, they're basically like instances of, uh, of the actual particle of quanta, but... Ta- tachyons. Tachyon particles, so it's a theoretical particle. Right, it's but, not. It's, but we, yeah, right. But we do we have any evidence for tachyons? No. Okay. No, we don't have any. But they say that um, tachyon particles, and again, this is all this theoretical, sure, sure. move faster than the speed of light. Okay. And what happens if you go faster than the speed of light? You move back in time, back but particles. Time. But we know that particles are time symmetric, so either way, they go back and forth in time all the time. So, like most particles, they 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 spin and they move back and forth in time all the time. So, there's no actual description of the universe, uh, like in Feynman diagrams, for example, that requires f- uh, any particle to be uh, under the influence of thermodynamics. Like it actually that has no no bearing on it at all so it, it's completely time symmetrical in fact there is no distinction in physics in particle physics between um an electron and a positron a positron you can be described as an electron that is moving back in time and that's not just a way of talking about it. wait what okay so you know what a particle and an antiparticle is right i know what a particle is okay so an elect every particle has an antiparticle the antiparticle of an electron is a positron, which is just an E with a plus next to it. So now the way we, depending on what we're trying to describe, there's something called the Feynman diagrams, which is essentially those very beautiful diagrams that describe how particles interact in any possible way. And when you draw them, you can show that there's certain interactions of particles that happen under certain conditions, and there's a higher probability of certain interactions to happen than other probabilities. And then you measure the amplitude and you come up with like, what is the most likely? And that's the physical world that we see. But you can rotate Feynman diagrams in such a way that the thing that was described as uh, an electron, if you turn it around, it has like an arrow that basically represents what direction of time is going. But it's not really a direction of time. What it really means is that the, the quality of what it is, that, that quality of electronness, is, is represented by the arrow going this way. You'll have to it's, send me this too, because I don't know if I... Sure, sure, sure. It, it's I've, very abstract. I've, I'm aware of that. Yeah. But the, but the point is is that, so to your point, uh, the tachyons can move faster than the speed of light going back in time. The specifics of how particles behave in general is very weird and strange. And one of those things is that, you know, every particle is an antiparticle, and then it's not clear. It's, it, 
it doesn't make even any sense to ask if the particle is going backwards or forward in time because it's the same as saying it just have a neg- like the opposite charge. Um, but the point is, is that not, there's a lot of things that are not bound by what we consider to be bound by. So you know that the universe at the edges of the universe, actually the fabric of space itself, flies away from us faster than the speed of light. The fabric of space doesn't have a, a, a speed limitation. We also don't know if we have an edge to our galaxy or to our universe. Yeah, yeah, obviously. So we but, don't. But like, but that's specifically to the speed of light. So like speed of light, photons can can go only the speed of light or through a different speed if they go through different uh, through different material. But space time itself, like the actual fabric of space, can move faster than the speed of light, and it doesn't have any limitation. I mean, I, I I would say it's naive to think that there isn't something out there that doesn't go faster than the speed of light. Right now... In, inside space-time, yeah, it seems to be a pretty... Right now, in the current moment in science, as far as I am aware of, uh, nothing can go faster than the speed of light. Right, but that... That has been proven. Right, but that's only under the... the it's also under the presupposition that we kind of understand what light is and we don't. We actually don't know what light is. They're photons. Well, that's photons not. Photons of energy. Those are pockets in quantum fields, but we, it doesn't actually explain what it is. Like, we don't actually understand the nature of what light or electricity actually is. We know those are some excitations in quantum fields, but we don't understand what they are. We so, we know the properties of those, but that's, but that's a different thing. You understand know what I'm saying? Well, we know what a photon is, though. So it's like, not, not really. You know that a photon is an excitation in the electromagnetic field. So there's an electromagnetic field, and then excitations in the electromagnetic field presents themselves as single photons to us when we look at them in a certain way. But to say that we know what they are is the equivalent of looking at a car, if you've never seen a car before, and saying that you know what a car is because you know how fast it can go. No, I mean, I know that we know that there's so much more to learn about these things. Right. But well, we know the existence of it. We know what it can do. We know the effect of it. We know, like, how fast it goes. Yeah. We, we know... We know the properties what, of its behavior, we know. Right. We know right. enough about it to know that it exists and that it is there. Or that our perception of it exists and it is there. Yeah. <laughs> that, <laughs> no, but that matters. Now it appears to matter. So let me bring it back to Earth for just a second, because this is, you know, went so far that I don't even know what my name is. <laughs> um, and, and I, and I, uh, I'm very grateful and thankful that you uh, took the ride gracefully. What are the things that you feel give you the most, like, fulfillment or meaning? Is it creating things? Is it interacting with other people? Is it some combination of the two? What do you feel is that the moments that you really feel like, oh, I'm happy to be alive? Oh, I think it's definitely both. Like, I, I love teaching, I love helping people, and I'm very blessed to have a social media following that allows me to, to be able to help a good amount of people. You know, in the beginning, it was not something I cared for. I didn't care about the number of followers, and I still don't. Like, it's just a, it's just a number, but it does symbolize something, and it symbolizes the amount of, you know people i can reach and i do my best to try and give fun facts fun um i enjoy those 
Yeah, and, and and to educate people and all these and to help people get into astrophotography or, or light painting or whatever it is that I may know that they want to know. Like, so I enjoy teaching, but also that doesn't come without the enjoyment of creating. Yeah. And can't tell you a single time that I've not seen an image pop up on my camera or computer of, of any deep space object or that I've not just been in awe of, you know, even if I've seen, yeah, I've seen the Orion Nebula a hundred times, you know, and in fact, I think when you came over my house, I was shooting, right? I think you were, yeah, I, I think was, you were shooting it, yeah. Yeah, I was shooting um, the Elephant's Trunk Nebula. And like, I had seen it so many times before and it was just like... It's just so exciting. There's something so majestic about space, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, my fascination was always with space. I actually started when I started in uh, in Israel, when I started studying uh, high education, it was astro- uh, uh, astrophysics. Like, that was the, the oh, thing nice. that, that, that really grabbed me. Uh, so I'm, I'm very, I very much share your, your love for, like, the, uh, you know, the infinite. But I just, I'm, I'm always... It always sounds so self-serving to compliment your friends, especially when they come on your podcast. But uh, it's true. Like I'm, I'm so blown away by the level that you you've arrived at, and really you arrive at any th- single thing you do. Because it's one thing to start astrophotography. It's quite another that three years or four years after you starting to have your pictures like you know bounced around like worldwide, like that picture you took of the sun. I always tell this to people, and I don't know if I'm lying, so you can correct me right now. I'm like, was it something that was posted around NASA or NASA's page or something like that? Or Yeah, so NASA reposted it. The senior engineer at the International Space Station, she posted it. And uh, who so, else? So you they... did, just to anybody who doesn't know, you took a picture of the sun with the ISS, the International Space Station, Crossing. Passing, crossing the sun, yeah. and you took it like you—you you put it like a, all the frames, all each, of, each frame of that it's, video. It's, it's an incredible image. Thank you. So, was, so that is not something that you. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of astrophotographers that, after four years, they still kind of like you know they don't get to a level where somebody from NASA is posting their 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 image. So, the, I guess what I'm really appreciating about what you do in general as a person is that you give a lot of. Like you're calling it staying in your lane, but you're appreciating the true connection to whatever craft you're trying to take on board, and then you engage with it fully. You don't finagle. You actually go really all the way in and trying to innovate in that particular it be- domain. It becomes an, an obsessive passion, you know. <laughs> it's like that's I, I I love what I do. Like I I do feel so blessed and and. I don't even know if blessed is, is a word, but like, I feel so lucky to be able to do what I do. And even if I didn't get paid or like ever make me anything, it's like the fact that I get to do this, I think is just so cool, <laughs> you know, and it doesn't, it doesn't get old either. It's like, I still get just excited today as I did the first image that I saw pop up on my screen. And, um, and then it also comes with an, another side of it. It's like when I go out in the field, because I normally shoot from home now, but like if I go out in the field and I go out to Joshua Tree or Vasquez Rocks or something, like 
and I, and I set up and shoot. As soon as it starts shooting at that point, I can just relax on the rocks and look up and, and stargaze. It's like, I feel like that's such a humbling experience. Like where you realize that you're really not as big as you think you are, or your problems aren't as crazy as you think you are. It's like, um, it's, you know, we, there's this giant universe and in those giant universes, there are thousands of galaxies and in those thousands of galaxies, there's billions, isn't it? Yeah. Billions. Yeah. yeah. And (laughs) there's like hundreds of galaxies. galaxies. There's like dozens of them. I've shot 80% of them already. (laughs) No, you're right. I just, no, no, no. I know. Jumping ahead. But like, you know, it just keeps getting smaller and smaller from galaxies to solar systems to planets to continents to countries to states to cities to neighborhoods and to our home and then to our family and then to us. And it just keeps getting smaller and smaller. And it even it goes smaller to that to like our thoughts even. And I feel like sometimes we can get lost in our own thoughts. Like our own problems can be bigger than the universe and we can perceive them. Like it's, it just consumes us as is everything. You forget about everything because sometimes you're lost in your own anxiety or depression or sometimes even the good thoughts, you know? Um, but I think sometimes stargazing, not sometimes, almost all the time, it grounds me. It makes me feel like, look, I'm just a small speck and my problems and issues are even smaller than that. They're just my thoughts. They're smaller than my body is. And to not stress or worry about the small things very much. You know, they don't they don't need to be so consuming. And so I think this hobby has a lot of grateful spots to it, you know. That's beautiful. Do you tend to abide by, by that? Like, do you try to really live like that? And you remind myself, yourself that often? I think about it all the time. It's hmm. probably why I'm so chill. <laughs> <laughs> Were you always this way? I get brought back all the time. Yeah. I mean, actually, I lied. I, I wasn't always this way. I... In fact, where I met you, we we started parkour together. For anyone that doesn't know, we used to jump off things and injure ourselves all the time. Yes, we did. But um, I started parkour because I had a lot of fears. I was afraid of a lot of things. Spiders, snakes, heights, taking risks, be, especially being alone. And I wrote down on a piece of paper all my fears. And I started parkour because some of those things were taking risks and uh, heights and like being active and stuff like that. So that's why I started that to get over my fears because I wanted to check off each one of these things. And I lived in a world of like anxiety. And, um, And then I just got over them over like one at a time. And so then, parkour actually made you get over these fears? Yeah. I I I I love being on my own now. I love being alone. I love I I don't I don't love heights, but they don't scare me anymore. Yeah, I remember yeah. you used to dangle from uh Yeah, the just one hand dangling. <laughs> yeah. Um 
And we're so, back. Thank you for joining us on our commercial break. And meow, 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 music. So I actually don't know where we were, but it doesn't matter. I, I do. I really love your perspective because people. Oh, we were at parkour. Uh, but but I also want to say that I do love your perspective because a lot of people like saying shit like that, but they don't really mean it. They like just they want to be heard saying it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I hear that all the time. Um, people. Yeah. Oh, they think that you do? No, no, no. no. Oh, I mean, oh, just like, they, yeah, yeah. I see everyone, you know, oh, I'd rather be camping. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I was like, so bitch, go camping. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen you fucking camp in years. <laughs> oh, I'd rather be under a nice sky than in a club. It's like, bitch, you, why are you at a club last night then? You could have drive, <laughs> driven down to Joshua Tree. It's so fucking true. People can just fucking go and do the thing. Yeah. No, I know, I know it's the most obvious thing, but people really don't abide by that. What I wanted to tell you about parkour is that I don't remember if we talked about it or not. But um, uh, Jacob Cormier, so he's uh, he's one of those people that just for a long time he just like it, he was just in the same place. Like he I know, was just, but the last like six and months, all of a sudden like, he's just like fucking like doing the big show. Like holy shit, this is amazing! I'm like this is just proof to you that yeah. sometimes it takes a long time to get to like this like where it Over becomes exponential yeah. yeah but it will always always if you stick with it it will become exponential yeah. and that's such a giant proof for me that's like amazing there's the the plateau and then you do and something or you, you 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 overcome it somehow and then you're on the next up track. oh no bro his plateau was long i know I, you know i interviewed him right oh did you yeah yeah i didn't release it yet though so now now, now i'm saying it but like it this obviously this episode would already have been released but yeah and we actually like we, he told me about like his you know psychotic break and the, it was really interesting um yeah i went of, to aaron reed's wedding and uh he uh do you remember aaron yeah yeah and uh he told me all about that and i was like dude i had no idea D- insanity he was like, I'm naked in an elevator in a metro, just going up and down. I'm like, this is fucking insane. Yeah. He lost his way. Yeah. But I'm glad he found it again. No, he, de- he and, definitely and found he's it. And he seems to be on a good road. You know, he got himself a car. He's got himself a good job. And, and he's organizing people. Yeah. Which I think is the biggest thing. I think that a lot of the stuff that you're talking about, in the end of the day, the connection to other people through bettering their lives in some way as trite and as cheesy as that sounds, it really is where it's at. There's something about contribution. There's purpose. Yes. And I think that the highest pur- purpose is to live a life that benefits not just you. And I, I again, I know how this sounds, but like there's, there's a certain feeling attached to it Jeez. that nothing else... We love cheese. I can't eat it because I'm lactose intolerant, but I love it. Um, but, you re- but you really... there's the, the feeling that you get from... Like, I remember I was uh, driving down the street and it was some big guy. He just face planted. He just, he just like, like, just landed on his face. He no. tripped. And it looked so bad. It was pretty heavy. And I was like, holy shit. So, you know, I like, without even thinking, obviously, I just stopped and, like, ran outside and, like, helped him. And then when I picked him up, th- there was, like, this great, like, he was so grateful that somebody would, like, help him up. Yeah. There was something about that moment. That, forget about all the cheese. Like, seriously, there was something about that moment. In fact, that you, you went out of your day to help a person. It, the feeling I got from it, there's like there's this moment of like him like thanking you with his eyes. There's no, 
There's nothing that feels like that. Yeah. Yeah, there's just like, a, so it's almost like it's ingrained in us to want to help if we can, but being helpful is actually a very difficult thing to do mm-hmm. because you don't know how you can help for the most part to people. Do you want to know why I help people so much? Like on, on my, no. or why I try to and I wake up to like attempt to, to give people facts or, you know, educate or whatnot? Tell me. So I've, I've got a little theory about my own life. Is like when you, when you're a kid, you, uh, you, you take a lot. That's all you do is you take. You take shelter from your parents. You take money from your family. You take uh, shits. Yeah, you take shits. <laughs> <laughs> you, you take knowledge from your teachers. You take friendship from your friends and that's all you're doing because you don't have much to give everything is coming from your parents your teachers your friends and like it's just coming in and you're not really giving anything out how are you what 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 the fuck do you have as a kid to give your parents that they can't do for themselves like it really is nothing and so i i honestly think that we spend the first 18 to 25 sometimes plus years just taking and um obviously this ranges depending on whatever childhood you've got but like for the most part is you're taking and i feel like it is your responsibility as a good human being to give back what you want to and the knowledge that you have gained along the way to pass it on to the next generation of people that want to do what you're doing or Whatever it is. And the whole hope is that one day I wake up every morning to about a hundred DMs. It used to be a lot more, but I've been a lot less active on social media the last few months. But Oh really? You get this kind of engagement? That's incredible. Oh, it used to be two, three hundred messages a day. That's every insane. Day. But and now it's a hundred and I'm glad I'm glad it's died down a little, but um I respond to every single one of them. Wow. And uh, a lot of them are just like, the majority of them are, are great job, love what you do, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. But a lot of them, though, is also, how do you do this? Or I want to get my first telescope. Or, you know, hey, I've got a processing question. I don't know how to, like... And so my, my biggest hope, and I, again, I answer all of them. And my, my hope for that is that one day this person will have learned something great and uh, whatever it is will help him feel great about his work. Or Let, her. Or her, yeah. We already canceled on so many levels. Let's just... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like, they'll feel great about their work and, um, and really feel proud because whatever it is that I taught them will like really give that extra oomph. And even more than that is... I hope people will start looking up to them and be inspired by their work and that they will one day help other people with whatever I taught them and just pass it along. Cause I think I don't, I don't think knowledge needs to be gate gate kept. Like, yeah. Like that is, that is a know, giant thing. It's like, if you know something like, I mean, you and I both have learned so much from Rafal and, 100%. And I'm sure that you and I both have taught Rafal a lot of stuff too. And 
it's just like and we've all been become better because we haven't gate kept what we know yeah that we share yeah the sharing is yeah no i yeah, again makes- like I, like i said it's it's the fact that you live what you say because i know i see you i see how you and and it must also feel so fulfilling to know that you have a role that actually does make a difference in people's lives because for the most part everything on social media is about well let's just say it's not about that for the most part it's not about the exchange of healthy information or at least not what it seems to be the majority of the time yeah and so when it is that's the success of social media sometimes though that could be i don't want to say it could be a down thing but i get i get ripped on for that too what do you mean because i've i've got a, a, a decent following and whatnot and i don't i don't ever post any of the political stuff on my page like i don't get me wrong like i support a lot of it and i think it's i think it's great that people are fighting for this that and the other and like i think it's about time that you know some of these things are taken seriously but I I don't I don't want to use my platform for that. I I see it all every day. It's like some people are you know, Black Lives Matter, Asian hate, all these, you know, all the different things. And again, I think that they're great and they're reasonable and I totally support people fighting for it. I'm sad it didn't they didn't start earlier. But my page for for a pun lack of a better term is a safe space. Like I, but it's I, not about that. That's not your product. That's not what you're trying to put into the world, which is like this debate, debate-based points. You're trying to put something that you believe is of value, yeah. Which is beauty and space and exchange of ideas, that, which is a different and that's the different thing. values. Knowledge and space, like those, those, those are my things. Knowledge, space, and photography, and how they all correlate with each other. And I think it's a beautiful thing. And I feel like if I were to post any of those controversial whatever issues oh, it would that are going on limit, it will immediately limit you 100 percent. it would just destroy what i'm trying to build like i want people to come to my page and want to seek some sort of knowledge or to see a beautiful image and brighten their day and i don't want i don't want people to feel stressed you know that that i love that mission I, well uh do you mind if I ask you, and we know we have to talk about it because I want to see if other people can get something out of it, so we can cut this part uh, if you don't want to talk about. Ask whatever you want to talk. Uh, I wanted to ask you about your, you know, about your night terrors and things like that. So, is this something you're willing to talk about, or sure? Okay. Yeah. So you uh, don't uh, know too much about it, but I'll, I'll what, say what I I'll say what, what you're I got. experiencing from yeah. it. This is something that you experience on a. So you experience night terrors sometimes. Is it sometimes or is it a lot? Was there's like periods? It's probably more often than not, and it does definitely come in waves. Um, I I would say I it's it sucks because it's both a mix of insomnia and nightmares, and I would say I get maybe like a good night of sleep once a week, if that maybe. Wow. Yeah. So that's so. How do you? operate you just learned to operate with the level levels of energy you have like how many how many hours do you sleep a night even if it's not good i got about three hours last night and i got maybe two three hours the night before and that's normal it's normal until you crash like i definitely go and eventually i just knock out for like a whole day 
Wow. Like it takes, I mean, after like two weeks or so, it takes, it takes some time for me to just recover, but it's like, it becomes a slow down, downtrend of like who I am too. Like I start to, I become way more introverted than I already am. And when you get way more tired. Yeah. The more tired I am, I start to get depressed and have anxiety, which is not something that I have. Like I don't, I, I'm not going to say I have anxiety or depression, but like I have moments, more moments that I'm depressed or can get anxious, like anxious easily over things if I haven't slept in a while. And, um, I, 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 it may, it's harder for me to be creative or to work. Um, if I've, not slept in a while sometimes even like basic motor functions are kind of tough like writing if i have to write something down like i have i don't have uh what's it when you get things backwards um uh, dyslexia yeah i don't have dyslexia like if i'm if i'm awake and good i i never make those mistakes but if i'm haven't slept sometimes i can't spell my own fucking name <laughs> like it's so you're saying the sleep deprivation might fuck you up <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. You heard it here first, <laughs> folks. Yeah. <laughs> Breaking news. So I guess what I'm trying to get at is that you, again, I've known you for a long time now, enough time to know uh, that everything you're saying is how you are. And so I would assume, I would imagine that for a lot of people with similar conditions, it just deranges them. But you seem to be like pouring the states you're in into something a little bit more productive that allows for somewhat of a normal life that also reaches out to actually make a difference in others' life. Do you feel, first of all, when this started for you was it like really early on when you were a kid or it was like all of a sudden started at a certain point in your life yeah no it started around high school that's pretty late actually so it's like yeah because like i I thought maybe you grew up with it completely and then you just kind of like okay that's just what it is no it was like late high school college time is when i started getting it started with nightmares um and i remember i don't remember what the nightmares were but i remember knowing that they were like linked to like what was kind of going on in my life like it wasn't they weren't so abstract like if something was going on in my life normally that was what the nightmare was Mm. um there was a lot of distress in that time in your life yeah yeah and and it was like um so I was so I, I don't know I know for a fact it was recording the majority of the beginning but just to be safe so you let's recapitulate just shortly you said that night terrors and, and nightmares started about late high school because of certain things that happened in your life and you feel like they were tied to whatever was actually happening so it wasn't so abstract and then and then then from there we basically stopped so basically do you feel that you it took you a long time to figure out how to maneuver that in your life like a few years yeah i kind of just accepted it and uh and these days it's like they're they're not abstract at all like that's the weirdest part is 
I feel like I live a very happy life. Like I enjoy my life. I love, I love who I am. I am proud of where I've come. Uh, I have, uh, I, I've, I've enjoyed the, the path that I've gotten to here and I, I'm proud of who I am because of that. And then I'm also excited for the future. So it's like, I'm, I'm in a very good, comfortable place and I live with ama- I have amazing friends. I live in a really nice place. It's like all these things that I'm, I'm very happy. And I don't have very many things that I'm stressed or like angry about or all those things. So none of my nightmares really make sense on why they come. I think they really are just abstract. Like I don't really look into these kind of things anymore. Like, Oh, like what's the meaning of that? Yeah. I don't, I don't really look into meanings, but you know, I guess to me, the, the reason I'm asking is less about the meaning. It's more about the, how you deal with it and what other people with a certain condition can maybe take from it. But, but you're saying that you just kind of appreciate what you have and that's kind of like your, def- your would you say well, that that's your default as a person well saying that yeah yeah i mean it's a i don't i just don't have an answer for people like because i've not been able to overcome it myself like i i still do my things i go to my gym uh, the gym every day and like I, I work on myself i think mental health is a, is a huge part of what keeps me going um doing the things that you love to do hang out with people that you love to hang out with all these things i feel like give me energy so even if i haven't slept in a while like that stuff can keep me going like i love meaning you're right i love to create i love to get on photoshop and make things and i love to shoot space and adventure and all these different things and so that is my purpose that's my why and that gives me energy even if my body doesn't really have very much i see what you're saying yeah so i think that that honestly is i don't know to what extent that's an advice because it's just like a it's a predispensation you have as a person which is really lucky for you even though the you know sometimes it's not lucky to have the the actual experience of these things but i guess that would be the best solution if you could somehow like if you if you're not doing that, if you'd be able to bring yourself to do that, I think that would be the solution for a lot of things, a lot of negative emotions. Which is, look at the meaning of what life can actually be. Yeah, and I I do recommend though. To for people to find ways to not have to live with this. Obviously, do you think like, it's just like a chemical imbalance of some sort that you haven't pinned down to? I don't know. I've been to a sleep study. And they just said it's an overactive imagination and stuff like that. Well, like brain functions, whatever. I had like the MRI when you're trying to sleep kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And it's just your brain just can't shut down. Interesting. And um, but what was something I did on my own. uh, And if you ever want the files, I could send you the file. But like is I took an Instagram thing of what, what do you guys take to go to bed if you need help, like a sleep aid? And I got, I think 15, 16 different things and I put them all on a sheet. And what I did was I first asked if, you know, if you want to send me four days of whatever you take. So if it's like CBD, whatever, if you can ship me four days of whatever, four nights worth of that, then I appreciate that. So I did four days of one 
uh, sleep aid. Let's say Tylenol PMs. And what that was was I did, I marked the time that I took it, the time that I went to bed, like got in bed and turned everything off, the time that I fell asleep, the time I woke up. How did you know that part? Like big give or take? My watch. Oh. It's got the sleep tracker and everything on it. And it's pretty damn accurate, to be honest. Uh, Heads up to Garmin. Sponsor me. (laughs) But, uh, and then... um, and then I've also I also wrote down how many hours I was asleep, uh, and all the, the the amounts of time in each stage of sleep. So light sleep, REM sleep, deep sleep, and then the times that how many times I woke up and how long I was awake for. I also wrote did I feel groggy in the morning and all the after stuff, um, and did I dream? I think there was two or three other things, but like that's the main part and I took four days of something and then I took four days off and just slept normally to give my body time to reset piss everything out like not have any of that stuff in my brain so that when I took the next thing for four days yeah you have to uh, reset palate the palate. cleanser yeah yeah so I ended up doing that uh for I think it was like 23 different things by the end of it like I started with like 15 or so and then as I kept going I added a few different things, and it was like, oh, I want to say 23, 25 different It's like 125 things. days total. Oh, no, that's double, because you also waited in the middle. Four days yeah. off, four days off, times 25. It that's was, at least 200 days. Yeah. Yeah. It took me about half, like a little over half a year to do yeah. so. And, um, and it was weird, because the two things that worked really well for me was Advil PMs. And I don't know why that one worked better than, like, the rest of them, but I slept really well. Um, I had dreams every night. Didn't wake up groggy. The, the way to fall asleep was a lot easier. Um, where you don't feel dizzy, like mad drowsiness. So that one worked really well. And then there's these gummies called Ollie's O L L Y's that you can buy on uh, Amazon. In fact, my mom was the one that bought those for me. And oh yeah, we we have that actually. They also have the yeah. They have the vitamin ones, and mm-hmm. then they have the yeah the food supplement ones. Yeah, they've got a, a few different things, and so they also have the sleep sleep aid ones. Which really, it's weird because the main thing in that is melatonin. But if I take regular melatonin, that doesn't work for it me. It might be concentration. Maybe yeah. yeah. If you take five HTP and melatonin, actually, I don't know. If I've done like, that. Both yeah. of them. Did it work? No. Are you supposed to take them together? I don't know if you're supposed to take them together. There's something with 5-HTP that I actually didn't know. That you're not supposed to take it with a lot of things. Hmm. I did not know that. You can actually get uh, serotonin poisoning with it. I had no idea. Interesting. So so what happened with the... Why don't you use Advil PM on a regular basis if it worked so well? Because I also don't like what it does to your body. Like, if, it, if I feel like it's desperate, like I've not slept in a while and I'm starting to get delirious, then I don't care what, like, I'm taking... What else is it doing to your body things. that you don't like? Well, like, because I also, I know that one, I don't, first off, I don't want my body to get used to taking something to go to bed. Like, I'd like to somehow, which you'd think, like, after 20 years, like, of, of having things, like, it's just not in the cars. But, like, still, I would... My whole my my goal and wish for this, and this is what I did after my whole thing, was that I would 
take the whole bottle over however long, like whatever the recommended dose is every night. And I would be able to fall asleep early and get a good night of sleep for a good amount of time to where my body would naturally get on that cycle and be able to, like it would remember what it's like to fall asleep normally. And, uh, that, that, and then once the bottle was done, it was like, no, I was back to insomnia, just as bad as it was. That's so so weird. it helps me to go to bed in that moment, and I'll take it, you know, if I'm desperate. But I know I understand the thing with the not uh, having your body getting used to something. I'm actually logging every single day with any kind of supplements that I take and how I feel before and after. And it's hard to keep track of because I'm taking a few of them at the same time, but I'm trying different combinations. Yeah. But there are a few that already triangulated, which is like already showed me. I'm supposed to, I think I need to do like a full blood uh, panel, like just to find out if there's anything off that I need to be more aware of. But I'm pretty sure that I'm very low on serotonin because when I take 5-HTP uh, and you're not supposed to take them every single day. So I, you know, also kind of like spread it out. But like, I feel radically different. Like I realized that my whole life I'm like uphill battle because I, I, I basically like a lot of serotonin. So it's like, it's uncomfortable to be in my body. Yeah. Most of the time. So I'm just like muscling through whatever. But I didn't even realize that you're not supposed to be feeling this way. So uh, obviously it's not the same as like not being able to sleep all the time. But like they're, I, they're I, similar for sure. But but I would say that the, I, tr- I have very deep, deep sympathy, even though I know that that works. I still there's a part of me that's like, yeah, but I still want to be able to be off of it as much as possible. And do some it reason. naturally. Yeah. Yeah. And meditation really helps. I mean, when I got into, uh, you know, like actual like meditating and going to retreats and now we do two hours every day, that really helped a lot with with my ability to actually just stay centered. Right. I still feel the sometimes the anxiety in the body and the uncomfortable feeling, but I don't have the same response to it. Hmm. I have a different relationship to what that means to have that experience, basically. And that really helps like uh, shift a lot of things. I remember 5-HTP was great when you were really feeling down. Like, for me, at least in, in my high school slash, you know, college days, I was big in the rave scene and you would stay up all night doing... Oh, with Molly and shit, yeah. Yeah, all that stuff. And then in the morning when you're feeling like shit, that's when you would take 5-HTP and, like, that would really boost your feeling of life <laughs> and yeah but i i also i remember taking it though even after i gave all that stuff up and um and it didn't do the same effect like i felt like it, it works it's a concentration really, thing so it, if i take 100 uh, i don't feel it if i take 200 i definitely feel it there was a study that showed that they gave people four four to six weeks on and then four weeks off and they gave him 200 to 800 daily. They, in some cases, they eliminated like very uh, heavy cases of uh, depression, which is, That's, and it's just 5-HTP. You just go buy it in a, yeah. like a CVS. I think we just, everybody needs to just get laid more. <laughs> There's the problem to everything. You know what? I think you're onto something. You know what? There's, you have sleep issues. Get the best fucking BJ of your life and just pass the fuck out. Find a woman that's just going to like leave you there to die and you don't need anything. <laughs> you know what? Oh, I think Xena turned everything off for us. 
Thank you, Zena. <laughs> Trust me, um, I, it took me forever to like convince Rafal to buy a fucking dummy battery. Okay, so I think you're convincing me. I think I just need to get uh, a dummy battery. We're still going to have the issue with the memory cards. Just get bigger ones. Um, so, uh, what are you saying? Getting a blowjob? Yeah. Just just find yourself a good woman. Just Or or a good man. Don't discriminate. Yeah, there we go. I feel like I've just discriminated. <laughs> I'm getting canceled so blowjobs. But uh, yeah, find yourself a good partner, just take care of you and let you die. Whoa. Well just, just I wanted to say that it's a good note to end on, but this one just made fun. <laughs> little literally fucking good to end on. Um uh, Mac. <laughs> We've been going on for three and a half hours and I barely noticed it. Blow and bounce. <laughs> <laughs> that was a lot of fun. I, I uh if if you're open to it, I would love to do uh another one at some point. Dude, uh anytime. Okay. I'm this, super I'm, down. I enjoy these conversations. These are fun. Okay. I've I've enjoyed it tremendously and I think we touched on a lot of things that uh not a lot of people are willing to go there with me and you did and I appreciate that. And uh, and also, I've uh, you're such a positive influence in general. So it's always a pleasure to have you around. But uh, and I'm and I'm honored and very happy to finally get to have you on my podcast, man. Thanks, man. And honestly, it has been such a pleasure to know you for I want to say what twelve years. Uh, since 2011 or 10, yeah. Yeah. So like 11 years at least. 11 years. Yeah. And and it's been an honor and pleasure to know you, and you've been such a great friend all those years and I don't think we've ever punched each other in the face like, not yet do you feel like dying in this podcast what was it Lex <laughs> yeah. well just you know it's very mutual Max so thank you thank you so much for doing that. this of course